Heavy Cardboard, episode 145, Pax Transhumanity. Coming to you from the first world sphere in Boston, Massachusetts, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts, I'm Edward. And I'm Andrew. All right. So, hey, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, coming on, especially given everything that's going on in the world right now. What are you talking about? Yeah, I, yeah no, I don't know. Nothing. If... If Andrew is familiar to you, or I guess I should say, if you watch the YouTube channel, Andrew's probably familiar to you. He's played on a number of the streams. Uh, You've either seen him on like Crusader Kings that we streamed last night, or you haven't. He's been the disembodied voice because he's the tallest of all of us and sits over kind of in between where the cameras are. So you get to see his hands. Right, You might have seen my arm. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, uh, so welcome to the podcast and tell folks a little bit about you, gaming background, you personally, whatever, favorite games, all that stuff. Sure. Um, I guess briefly, uh, I've been playing games, you know, pretty much your whole life, but uh, really Diplomacy was kind of my first heavier game that I got into. See, and I didn't even know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, I just had a friend in high school who had a copy and was just like, let's just get this together and make it happen. And we played and I distinctly remember half of us really liking it and the other half being like, why did we do this? We wasted a day on this. <laughs> Uh, so we played that a bunch of times and that kind of led to me actually going to uh tournaments uh i'm gonna preface this by saying i was not good at that game never any good but i got dragged along by my friends so all right fair enough uh so diplomacy i get for people who aren't aware it's a game that takes a long time to play and it's all about negotiation all about negotiation either telling the truth or not yeah very often not uh I was bad at it because I'm not very good at lying to people to their face. <laughs> but so there was a lot, a lot of times where there would be downtime between games and uh, you would just kind of wander around and play other things like play poker or some other card game or something. And I'd, I'm good with this. Like, no. uh, yeah, OK. All right. Honestly, a lot of the appeal of the turns was just hanging out between the games because I was so bad at diplomacy. <laughs> but I distinctly remember uh, at a tournament in 2002. Uh, I had just gotten soundly beaten in a game of diplomacy by, I think, one of a, a WBC champion of diplomacy. Well, uh, if you're going to go out, go out like that. Yeah, right? I mean, I think it went down swinging, maybe. Uh, all right, then that's all you could <laughs> yeah. ask for. But uh, so I was walking by a table of other people who were playing a different game, and they, it was a game with the little colored barrels and like colorful boards, and it looked like an island sort of thing going on. And I was like, oh, well, what are you guys playing? We're like, oh, we're playing with a game called uh, Puerto Rico. Do you want to sit down? We got a spot open. And from that, I mean, the policy is kind of the first one. Puerto Rico is really when my mind was like, oh, these are what games can be. <laughs> That's, and I mean, it's a classic, right? Yeah. So that's, wow. Uh, yeah. And Puerto Rico, yeah. Puerto Rico is one of those games. I'm sure you have games like this, but it's a game that's like embedded within me. Like I can not play it for years and sit down with it and just immediately be like, I know how to do this. It's called Dominant Species. Yes. Yeah. That is, yeah, that yeah. is my Puerto Rico for you. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I actually played Puerto Rico last, uh, the last game day we had, uh, last weekend, uh, oh, that's right. Because Greg and guys, Chad, yeah, one of the guys had not played Puerto Rico yes, before. Yeah. Uh, so we sat down, and it was immediately. I ended up winning. 
not bragging, but just saying. And literally, <laughs> Chad it's was in- just like, never seen anyone do that before. It was like, oh, yeah, you just do this, this, and this. You know, you get the corn going and then get the wharf and, then, and just end the game as fast as possible. And like, Greg was just sitting there being like, okay, you played this bunch. All right. Right, right. right. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, Puerto Rico is one of those games where if you've played it a bunch, there are certain moves you yes. should. In, right. Either take or anticipate other yeah. people taking, et cetera. Right. And it's, you have to change what you're doing as you're playing, but there's definitely like paths you go down and if people leave openings for you, you take them. Right. Um, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so, so like Puerto Rico will always have a special place in my heart. Uh, and I will always love that game uh, endlessly, but, uh, yeah, kind of everything from there, you know, eventually got into like power grid and dominion and heavier and heavier stuff over time. Uh, and then kind of discovered, actually discovered your channel, well, let's give it a podcast first and was listening to that off and on and then had a kid. Uh, and for any of the parents out there, you know this. When you have a baby, you can't do anything. You are just <laughs> in a chair holding something, hoping it sleeps right. and not moving. Right. So there was a lot of watching videos on my phone. And eventually it was just like, oh, I could watch YouTube playthroughs of stuff maybe i could you know i'm not playing board games as much anymore because i have a baby so right. maybe i could get some you know some some level like of live a, vicariously through the other players 100 percent. Right? so started watching your channel and kind of yeah went on from there and became a patron eventually because i was like i probably owe this guy some money well i appreciate it very much and then i moved to boston and you're part of the of the heavy cardboard game group now yeah. so uh Favorite games. Obviously, Puerto Rico's got to be up, up there. there, but what else? Uh, Kalis, just, I. that's like the pinnacle. I know some people feel like Agricola is like their worker placement game, or uh, there's other examples, but like Kalis for me, that is that is worker placement. That okay. is the game that I will always want to play, and I just love so much. I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, he likes Kalis. <laughs> worker placement, that's his favorite? No, I think yeah. that's, yeah, that's totally. There are just people who are like, that game's too mean, and I'm like, that's why it's good. You're right. <laughs> So. Watch the streams. You know this. Yeah. Uh, but what else? Um, Chaos in the Old World. I always also has a place in my heart as a really cool. Just I think that does asymmetry and games really well. Uh, just having different factions that play completely different from each other with sort of asymmetric goals and like dudes on the map, but like. And that's a fantasy flight, like 40K, right? Yeah, isn't it? Okay. yeah. And that, All right. Right, and that's like discontinued because of their whole license thing. And it's sitting in the library. We should oh. pl- we should play that and stream that sometime. Okay. That'd yeah. be good. And I, I think that's a game that is, I can also see has warts. You know, it's not a perfect game by any stretch, but I still love it. Um, and oh, what else? Android Netrunner was also a game that I dearly loved and you know also discontinued these days because of licensing issues but so what you're telling me is if andrew really likes a game it's gonna die it's gonna die (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) okay noted all right so nice and and obviously you've been getting into i mean we did seki gahara yeah uh, undaunted normandy so you're getting into war games as well yeah totally uh that's kind of been the weird uh, we know people who have kind of fallen down the 18xx hole oh boy in a deep way yeah like they're still falling off yes, the cliff at this right. point yes uh i kind of gone the other way where i'm just like oh there's these war games i should just get more and more into that right like that's the smart thing to do <laughs> which is awesome for me from a selfish standpoint because now i have people on both of those kind of areas that i i have folks that i can play war games with mm. to be able to stream but plus you know just play but also down the 18xx um abyss yes <laughs> 
well so put. All right. Awesome. Well, hey, I appreciate you uh, you coming on, man, and hanging out tonight. So as far as what's been going on here, I mean, eh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk at least a little bit about the coronavirus mm-hmm. and, and all that that's going on. So when things kind of went haywire, I wasn't even in Boston. And so it actually kind of kind of got wonky or really came on, if you will, mm. it seemed was not this past weekend, but the weekend before that, which is the weekend before Gamma Trade Show, which takes place in Reno, Nevada, which I was I was going to. My roommate, uh, a designer and publisher, um, was he messaged me on Sunday, hey, are you still coming? I'm like, uh, yeah. Then on Monday night, right before we got ready for the Coffee Trader stream, he messaged me, hey, so many publishers and so many uh, uh, distributors have canceled. Doesn't make sense for me to go. So you want me to transfer the hotel in your name? And I was like, what? I didn't budget for that, number one. I By the end of the live stream, I decided, okay, I'm not going to Gamma because mm-hmm. I just I can't afford it. And... Then uh, Jess was like, hey, why don't you reach out to, you have a lot of friends, why don't you reach out and see if somebody's got a bed? And so I did, and literally three minutes later, I had a room. And so I was like, okay, cool, I will go then. So went out to Gamma Trade Show on Tuesday morning, and then we went to dinner, everything was fine, we played some games Tuesday night, and then the, the, the trade show started on Wednesday. But... Things kind of went really crazy on Wednesday night when uh, Trump gave his speech and canceled, you know, travel. Yeah. What people thought to and from Europe. Right. Yeah. And uh, we were getting ready to go to dinner and there was a group of about eight of us and one of which had to fly back to Poland and he was just terrified. He wasn't going to be able to get home to his wife and kids. And so he was like, you know what? I'm going to change my flight to tomorrow morning. Which means that the guys at Borden Dice, and by guys, I mean Guy Rayner, uh, he was going to be by himself now in the booth. And he had some stuff going on at BGG on Thursday, To and he was going to have nobody in his booth. And so he's like, hey, man, can you can you help me out and just hand out promos to retailers? I was like, absolutely, whatever you need. Because uh, Iraq ended up having to change his flight. He was worried he wouldn't make it back to Poland. Long story long, if he hadn't changed his flight, his flight got canceled and he would have been stuck outside of either the EU or outside of Poland. I'm not sure which it was. So that's when it really started to feel real. Well, yeah. was on on Wednesday night. That was the turning point, I think. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, Julie from Greenbrier Games, who lives just outside Boston as well, she was like, "Hey, when are you flying out?" I said Friday morning, and she was like, "Well, do you want to change your flight to Thursday night?" And I was like, "That's a red eye. I really don't wanna. I would like to be able to sleep in a bed." But then it seemed like every few hours things just got worse. Yeah. And at this point, I was like, "You know what? United's offering free changes, you know, and all this." And I was like, "Yeah." I will. So I changed my flight to Thursday night for the red eye to get from Reno to Chicago, Chicago to Boston. And honestly, the real reason for that was one, I wanted to get home and just be here in case things went nuts. And number two, if things got nuts overnight while we were there, then if for some reason we couldn't make it back to Boston, well, at least I had Julie, we could kind of tag team driving, renting a car and driving to Boston from Chicago if need be. Um, 
these are things that I never would have thought we would have had to have considered. Right. And as soon as I landed, Jess was like, "Mm, probably ought to go to the store and buy some groceries, not 734 rolls of toilet paper, mind you, (laughs) but get groceries. So I spent an ungodly amount of money on King goods and, you know, non-perishables. Right. And then smart thing to do. Right. Yeah. But, oh my God, it was like Thanksgiving, the day before Thanksgiving at the grocery store times like five. It was absolute insanity. I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. It felt like I was in a movie. Yeah. It really did. And so now here we are. uh, Schools are canceled. You know, pretty much all over the country. I mean, there, I'm sure there are states that that haven't, but here in the Boston area, Massachusetts, schools are closed until early April. So far, yeah. Then while we were at Gamma, LyriaCon got postponed until Memorial Day weekend. Well, that means I'm not going to that because hey, heavy con. Then the gathering of friends the day I got home got canceled, which once the travel from Europe got canceled, that was that was pretty much a a known quantity at that point. So yeah, it just at this point, now I'm like, what goes on with HeavyCon? Thankfully, the day I landed, also I called the hotel and I was like, um, What's going like? Yeah. What's the deal with this? Because I'm on the hook for about fourteen thousand dollars for HeavyCon because you have to make deposits as well as commitments, right? Based on rooms. And she said because it's been classified as a pandemic, and there is a there's a a two word Latin term that I can't think of off the top of my force majeure that yeah uh, basically says ominous dominus you are free from all of your. Uh, requirements all of your obligations you'll get your money back and i was like you have no idea how big of a relief <laughs> that was because right now heavy con's still going on but things are so fluid who knows yeah at this point right i yeah. mean when they canceled they canceled march madness got canceled yep uh, and all the if, like if you're espn you gotta just be like well oh yeah like every sport is just delayed just postponed done. or done yeah like yeah, this just, is yeah this is i mean uh, people say the spanish flu back in uh around the time of world war one um but they didn't i mean the world was a different it was 100 years ago so this is never it's just surreal yeah and it's scary it's legitimately scary at this point um and you got stuff going on on your end as yeah. well. I mean, we all well, do, obviously. Right? Yeah. And so I feel like on my end, I am very lucky because my wife and I can both work from home and we're trying to do what we view as a responsible thing. We pulled our kid. Our daycare, amazingly, has not closed. I feel like that's going to happen any day now. But we pulled her out. We figure, and it's not like because we're concerned about her where it's more like we're just trying to limit contacts right we're right. trying to limit like exposure as much as possible so we don't have to go to daycare so it's like some we break that vector we're trying to like that whole social distancing thing totally yeah and we're trying to follow that as much as we can right within the limits of sanity like we are trying to set up play dates with neighbor kids who are around the same age as our kid and we're trying to make it do be outside weather permitting weather is not cooperating very <laughs> right. well with us waking up this morning and seeing snow outside was kind of like come on like it's March. <laughs> right. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and and what we've done for for the game group here is we're no longer going to have official game days, uh, you know, like gatherings of like 10, 15, 18 people here at HCHQ. What we've decided to do, at least for right now, is 
all of us have pretty much limited who we're having contact with and what we're doing. And I was talking to you guys before the stream last night that basically this is your one diversion. You're the one thing that you're going out and still yeah. doing. Right. And but we're all we all have made an agreement that it's going to be a single table game day. Right. It's yeah, this is my exception to being in a group, but it's also going to be a group that I feel like can't be bigger than five. Like, right, right. I mean, it's it, that, that's all we can ever play with, anyways, for streams and stuff. So yeah. that's all we're going. We're going to limit. So there's going to be a lot of game days here at HCHQ nowadays, but they're just going to be single table game days for getting ready for a stream or getting ready for a review or yeah. whatever it is. So that's our version of social distancing because all of us are you know either immediately local. Or very, very close local. So, yeah. And we have people who are in the group who, you know, for various reasons don't want to come, like, you know, or can't. Right. You mentioned on the stream last night, Chris is a doctor. Yeah, he doesn't want to risk it. And yeah. that's totally understandable. Like, uh, yeah. And, and in fact, if not encouraged, right? Yeah, because exactly. he doesn't want to get any of his patients sick and anything right. like that. So, literally, we have no idea when we're going to see Chris again, which is, it yeah. sucks, but it's also the responsible thing to do and yeah. wholeheartedly support yeah. that, obviously. I, right, and I've, like, reached out to him and said, hey, if you want to try to get something done online, like, you know, we can make that work. Right. Like, we, you know, I if it's obviously, I feel like a big challenge is just going to be keeping people sane, <laughs> like, just making sure that they don't, like, crack under the pressure of, especially for people who are on the medical side of this. So, like, anything I can do to, like, make his life feel a little less nuts, I'm totally on board with. And I'll be honest, I I think that also extends to all the parents out there just because as somebody who doesn't have any kids of his own, I don't quite truly appreciate having school-age kids <laughs> with cabin fever. That's got to be amazingly tough, right? On top yeah. of... Are you still going to work? Are you not? Right. Yeah. And just, I, yeah, heart goes out to you. Just try and stay sane. And honestly, yes, it's my job, whether it's the podcast or the live streams, but I also kind of feel, I don't want to put too big of an emphasis on this because it's, I, it's still just stupid board games in the scheme of what we're sure. talking about. Sure. That's all it is. But hopefully the live streams and the podcast help be diversions for people, right? Yeah. Hey, I got nothing going on on a Thursday night. Hey, is heavy cardboard streaming something? Throw it on and you can interact with us. So it's not just that one way thing that you get from TV. Hey, if you're in chat, you know, we can chat and, yeah. and, and just like Crusader Kings last night was a hoot. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> we'll talk about that here in a little bit though. But, but yeah, so I mean, it's, I realize that people are listening to this to get away from all this, but I feel like there's some responsibility to at least talk about it from our standpoint and yeah. our experience of what this is. It's not going to obviously, uh, you know, be the predominant topic going forward, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I figure at least in this episode, since this is when it really. Yeah. And I think it's important to say, like, we're trying to be responsible about it, right? Like we're trying, you know, we're washing our washing our hands as oh, much as we can and like yes. keeping each yes. other updated about like our health and like trying to and keeping the, the numbers of people low in terms of the who they get like we're trying I feel like you are trying very hard to do it in a responsible way because it it's 
that makes sense too, right? Right. Oh, totally. And if things keep going sideways, like the what happened in California, there's a bunch of counties out there that you have to, uh, what do you call it? Shelter in place. Yeah. yeah. For, until April. Yeah. Oh my God, stay home. Right. Yeah, guess what? Solo games. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Solo or, or maybe maybe two player if Jess is around or, or Derek because they're literally he's you know right. a couple blocks away, that right. type thing. But yeah, it's it may be coming. We don't know. And so it's uh yeah, just trying to be reasonable but also extremely cognizant and and being careful and being diligent about everything as well so it is what it is and just be safe out there and um good luck to everybody out there Mm -hmm. so as i mentioned it is a board gaming podcast however (laughs) so let's let's talk board games so what you've been playing of late uh, so yeah, a few weeks ago, uh, I've, so since we did the stream of 1889, that was my first experience with 18XX ever. Uh, and I, I think that showed on the stream. <laughs> um, but, uh, since then I've actually gotten more involved with the local 18XX group and played some more, I played, uh, 1830 and 1848 and 18 Mex. Uh, like I said, have not fallen off the cliff of 18xx and and you know fallen deeply in love with the genre like i like the games but i also have like some some real there are times when i'm just like this is i'm so annoyed <laughs> you know um but so a few weeks ago I played 1889 for the first time since that stream okay and was really surprised how much i enjoyed it like it was just like oh because everyone kind of talks about it's like oh this is the one this is like one of the few games that are recommended as like an introduction to 100 percent yes it is totally that it is a good introduction but it's also just a good game like it's also just really fun and like i felt really good about the experience of playing that uh i also was a very close i came in second by 26 dollars that's impressive that well done i was very annoyed <laughs> so let me ask you if you would finished second uh by 300 dollars, as opposed to 26 would that have felt better i would have felt less un- i would have been less like reflecting on the game being like what was where the thing? did i leave what? those 27 dollars yeah exactly like that's pocket change what was i doing <laughs> so if I could have gotten that extra dollar on that route. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I feel like it, I understand what you're saying. It is kind of a sickness of like, I'd rather lose bad than lose. Cl- like that's. It's always that dilemma. I it, like some people it, it would rather get smoked. Other people would rather be in a nail biter. But mm-hmm. then when you're on the short end of the stick, you're like, yeah. ah, what could I have done better? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I get that. Um, yeah. In 1889, I think is like you said, it's a fantastic jumping off point, but it's not oh okay i've played it a handful of times let's move on to the next title right you can do that and realistically most people are going to a do lot of that. people will yeah but 1889 allows the opportunity for oodles and oodles and oodles of repeated play and 1889 is basically a reskin of 1830 but set in japan so smaller smaller map less trains yeah a little bit just it it plays quicker a little bit less i think 1830 has like weirdness to it which is part of the fun but also like you can just kind of fall into a gutter and not realize it until it's too late fair enough uh, yeah. i think 1889 kind of protects you against that little, which is why it's a better beginner experience but it still has those like oh i'm completely screwed because i my tile i put my tile down wrong You're right uh, i laid that the wrong direction yeah. well mistakes were made yeah all right so what else uh so as we mentioned crusader kings uh got that streamed last night uh i recommend people check that out it it, <laughs> it is a game that 
is better than what I expected it to be. Yes. Because usually whenever you get board games based on a video game IP, you know, whether it's a superhero thing or whether it's something that is a just a classic as heavy as you can imagine video game, which Crusader Kings is, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to keep the soul of the game intact, but also make it playable and not be a constant referencing charts and just yeah. getting lost in a minutia. And I don't know that there are, I think you can count on one hand, if not a few fingers, how many streams had more laughing in them than last night's <laughs> Crusader Kings. And that's not because of the stream. That's because of the gameplay itself. Yeah. I'm, yeah. And I think, that that game surprised me so much because I I think I so I remember reading the rule book before the first time we played it and it's you know a, a big core of it is like you get a collection of cards and each card lets you do an action and then there's an event associated with it and so you're reading the rules and you're just like oh, okay there's like a little bit of like programming a little bit of like playing ahead like kind of like brass esque where it's like you pick two cards to play and you know you kind of do an order and so reading the rules and just seeing it cut and dry like that I was just like oh okay, this seems fine, but I don't really know if it's going to be that entertaining. And then you actually show up and sit down. There were two things that like immediately struck me. First was when you actually see the cards themselves and see the events on them, you're like, oh God, these events are so rough because most of the cards, almost all the cards either hurt you or help your opponents. And there's one category that's the opposite, but for the most part, you're going to be hurting yourself a lot in that game because the actions the actions are positive but the events tend to be negative yeah. for you right? and the events are real negative it's stuff like your king fell off a horse and now he's got a negative trait and he's older <laughs> or, oh, or or shortened his lifespan yeah, right yeah, yeah. yeah or uh oh sorry your eldest son is dead <laughs> like it's just well Great. Okay, I was grooming him to be the successor, but all right. Uh, not now. Not um, now. Th- things yeah. happen. Or oh, there's a plague. Sorry, everybody's got it now. <laughs> Just it's and it's it's hella chaotic, and there's a ton of randomness in this game. But the stories that come out of that game are. Just memorable yeah. experiences. Yeah. And it was it was far better than I expected it to be. Um and there's there's a lot more strategy in that game there than is. you would think off the surface. Yeah. And I think like the other thing that was surprising to me and it was immediately really welcome was that you start out and the map is small. Like you are on top of each other immediately and immediately bumping up against each other and there is no room for error because you if you take one like one taking one territory from your opponent is huge in that game. It's a two point swing because you only get victory points from the territories you control and there are four achievements. Yeah. So there are realistically the scores are going to be anywhere between I don't know 7 and 10. Yeah. So swinging a, a two point swing is it's massive massive yeah. in that game yeah yeah so it's there's a lot of room for negotiation a lot of room for really fun like trying to figure out what someone else is doing and taking advantage of it but also it's just absurd like there's just so much absurdity in it based on the random events and like the characters that come out but all thematically work. Yes. Like, and totally. the mechanisms all thematically work. So yeah. it may, it's just kind of intuitive in yeah. a lot of ways. So, yeah, definitely uh, recommend 
checking out the stream, it, it it's not going to be for everybody. It's definitely one no. of those games. Hey, you're going to want the right right group. You need the right group for it 100%. To, to be able to play it. But uh, but yeah, I think four and five player that game's going to be fantastic. Yeah, uh, really, really good. Absolutely. Uh, and the other one, I uh, just want to mention, I uh, played Bus a couple times recently, and that game, I 100% am glad like that I I jumped on the uh, the anniversary edition, like got it. Like I remember there was a whole like thing in Slack where, where people were like, "Oh, I don't know, this seems like a lot of money for this. Is it worth it?" And I was just like, "It's a splatter game that is really good, really easy to teach, and really short. Like I don't." How is this? How could anyone say no to this? And I'm just, I, I have been validated in that decision. Well, the price tag, I the mean, the price tag is it, it's massive. And, yeah, yeah. It, it's, and it's one thing, it's funny that uh, Clay, it's something Clay and I talked about at Gamma that unfortunately the price tag has to be the way it is due yeah. to things that are out of his control. I don't want to go into the details of all that, but there are, there are reasons that he can't make it cheaper. Totally. And be, and actually, you know, not running the red with yeah, the game right and i i can appreciate that and i can totally appreciate people who say i can't afford that like fine 100 but for people who can afford it and are we're going to buy like a hundred plus dollar game anyway with like full of miniatures or whatever overproduced nonsense like no bus get bus it's great well you say that but crusader kings was a lot of fun well yes <laughs> a bunch of minis that you really don't need and yeah but yeah it's yeah I, right i mean we didn't really mention on the stream but the the minis on the crusader kings is just it's so unnecessary it's re- it's absurd because you have these area control tokens of these giant like lovingly sculpted knights that are like really well detailed but it's like this just shows me that i controlled this like this could have been like a, a pole or like a circle like or it could have been a cube yeah right like it could have i mean but but again people like their minis people so, like their minis yeah and it's coming from the video game world and yeah i understand it but yeah yeah it was pretty funny when you're like oh all that is is signifying i control that area <laughs> yeah okay got it all right yeah cool. um but yeah so bus i think it just the level of like the meanness of it i mean i've already said kalis is my favorite worker placement game and i still think it is but bus is up there because the the meanness of turn order in that game is so brutal and it is so mean when you take the spot that someone else needed desperately that round like if someone gets the line expansion thing and all the other line expansions ones are worthless and oh you can make people real mad in that game <laughs> it's, it's very entertaining <laughs> Very simple mechanically. Yes. But, ooh, can it hurt? Oh, it can hurt so bad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's kind of all I've been playing recently. So. All right. So well, there there is one other I want to talk about here for for the that I oh, know sure. you have is Undaunted Normandy. Yes. And right. you turned me on to this game. Yeah. And I was like, you were like, hey, do you want to play this and maybe stream it? And I was like, yeah, we can give it a try. And you you basically sold me on it. And then we played it, and I was like, okay, this is. This is really good. I really like this. This is really impressive. Yeah, it's just a really clever. And I, I came to you and said, I mean, it's a short game, you know, playtime wise. And so I was originally like, well, this could be like a lunchtime stream thing we could do, you know, do it in like an hour or maybe maybe and uh, just play through a quick scenario. And it kind of went from there. Eventually, we did it as a nighttime thing. But just the that game feels so well thought out as a it's a beer and pretzels game like we mentioned that a lot on the stream it's it's a very much a like oh just chuck some dice and like let's see what happens but it's just so mechanically like 
it clean. feels yeah it feels frictionless right yeah. like there's no it makes sense what you're doing and it doesn't feel clunky uh and it, it just there's so much variety in the scenarios that you can make and a lot of sort of uh expanded uh like i've seen people do custom scenarios on bgg that are like it, it's just offers a really interesting system that i am really excited about uh, and and for those that don't know, it's it's basically uh, the U.S. versus the Germans, World War II um, card, kind of a deck builder. Kind of. Uh, it has a deck building element to it with a predetermined deck that you start with, as well as predetermined cards that yeah. you can add to your deck. Right. But it's a deck builder where it's very easy to take cards out of your deck, and when you take them out and when you put them back in is really an interesting decision and it's not like i think a lot of deck builders like dominion is kind of the classic example but a lot of deck builders have to sort of like okay i start off with a bunch of garbage and i'm just trying to get rid of it and get better cards and like up up my engine and da da da, da. there's no engine in the normandy there's just your squads and you're trying to get them to the objective before they die <laughs> like you're just trying to like Work with what you got and whether the attrition that opposing fire is going to just take out cards from your deck. Because every time you every time you get hit by something, that card's gone. There's and no you only back. have a finite amount of cards and there are only a finite amount of actual uh, characters, if you will, or, or, or units out there that can actually claim objectives, which is exactly. usually the goal of the game. Right. Yeah, it's you for the most part really revolves around those objectives and capturing those objectives. And if you lose control of a situation and you put your guys in bad cover, you're not going to recover from that. Like that is that is immediately you're going to pay for it. Right. Which is how it should be. Right. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it, it very, very simple mechanic, mechanical game. Uh, but thematically, I thought it was good. And it, like you said, it's just, it's clean and it flows really well. Yeah. Definitely enjoyed, uh, plays of, uh, Undaunted Normandy. Mm -hmm. Also got Babylonia played, which is, uh, a game from Essen last year designed by Reiner Knizia. Really, this is what you need to know about this. It plays like a classic late 90s Kinesia game, mm. um, kind of a I've never played Shogun by Kinesia, but I heard people compare or, or say that it's kind of Shogun meets Tigris and Euphrates. Okay. And voila, you have Babylonia. But everybody who's played that has enjoyed the game. And even our resident curmudgeon in our game group who terms everything perfect, perfectly cromulent. <laughs> Uh, said no, it's a good game. That is amazing praise, praise. there. Uh, but yeah, Babylonia, really, really good Kinesia game. Uh, a few others that I wanted to mention. We've been playing the monthly Age of Steam streams. So Age of Steam still going strong. You're going to hear more about that here in the acquisitions in a little bit. Uh, and then there were three prototypes that I have been privy to be able to play. The first of which was Ride the Rails which is the latest in the Iron Rail. I think it's called Iron Rail yeah, series so. from Capstone Games. It's basically he's reprinting some uh, select winsome games and making them prettier mm. and making them uh, available to the masses for a relatively low price point. And the second one is Ride the Rails. The first one was Irish Gage. This one is based on, I think the original game was called Rail USA or Rails USA, one or the other. Um, but Ride the Rails, mechanically, stupid simple. And really, really mean. It can be really, really mean. Yeah. Uh, 
basically six rounds, three steps, invest, lay track, move passengers. That's it in the entire game. But man, for I mean, it's a winsome. Mechanically very simple, but deep and uh, and mean. That, that I think, <laughs> welcome to win some games. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah, Ride the Rails went really well, and we streamed that recently. The next one was part of the Unpub game day uh, that we've been doing roughly every month or so, as they're available. This one also happens to be a Capstone Games game, and this one is Coffee Traders. Now, I've been looking, I've been watching the evolution of this game for the better part of two and a half years. When I was at SN, I guess that was 2017, that would be, I first saw this. So I saw Andre Spiel and Rolf Segel, uh, designers of Wildcatters. They've become friend of, friends of mine, and they, they showed me this game. They showed me Coffee Traders. And it seemed extremely convoluted and extremely fiddly. But I was like, oh, this is this is going to be good. I'm excited about this. And I was like, oh, has it been signed? And they said, no, um, we're looking at publishers, this and that. And I was like, when? They said, hopefully next year. That was in 2017. Psst, it's 2020. Mm-hmm. Then in 2018, I saw it again. It was more streamlined, good. And the guys were like, hey, it's about finished. And it's going to be Capstone Games. Oh, awesome. Good. Saw it again at Essen this year. Hey, it's finished. They'd revised <laughs> some stuff and saw it again, and it changed dramatically. But and they were like, "Here, we'll we'll give you this to bring home, so you can so you can stream it." And I was like, "Awesome, good deal, cool." That was in November. Then uh, then Rolf flew out here uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was like, "Well, I have the new version of it because remember it's been final three, four different times sure. throughout the evolution of this, and it's still going to change even a little bit more." But we did end <laughs> up streaming it, and I was mentally taxed after that game, and it has been so streamlined compared to where it was, and there's still so much that you're having to take in and it has a massive footprint. It will fit on a regular table, you know, your normal dining room table or whatever, but it's, it's a big one. The player, the player boards are huge. Basically you're farming coffee and then you are going to be trading coffee in Antwerp where about 80% of the world's coffee is traded. And then from there, you're then acquiring that coffee to then complete contracts or sell it to cafes. I mean, there's nothing here that is, Wow, I've never seen that before, right? In mm-hmm. the game, but the way it's it's implemented and the steps and the process of it makes for a really really in just rich and delicious game. And here's a cool little nugget. The original theme of Coffee Traders was about how the Dutch were uh, they got coca leaves from Java. This is around uh, the period, the time period, about 100 years ago, same as Spanish flu, mm-hmm. as well as uh, World War I. And they basically produced cocaine and then sold it to both sides of the war <laughs> to give to their troops so that, hey, if you're hungry, you're tired, you're cold, you're scared, yeah. if, you're, if you're doped up, you care a whole lot less about that. And it's not a part of their history that they're really proud of. Obviously, Obviously, I can imagine. I mean, it's not like we're not without our massive warts as well. But I love that theme. I think that would have been amazing to do. Mm -hmm. 
However, they want to be able to sell copies of the game. Yes. <laughs> so I understand them retheming it to coffee. And it has the Civic Cats, which if you're familiar with Civic Coffee, if not, Google it. There you go. We'll leave it at that. Mm. Um, yeah. So Coffee Traders is supposed to be coming for uh, in time for Essen this year. Supposed to be. Um, and I actually asked Clay about whether it's going to be traditional publishing or a Kickstarter uh, in time for later on this year. And he said, honestly, right now I'm not 100% sure, mm. which is what I said on the stream I thought it would be, just from the sheer quantity of components. There is so much wood and so many player pieces in this game. I understand why that might end up going to Kickstarter. Yeah. I, I totally can understand that. Yeah, I, I'm not saying it is. He's not saying it, but it might. So there's that. That's Coffee Traders. And the last one that I think some folks out there are going to be interested to hear about is one of the two games, along with Ride the Rails, that I was going out to Gamma to actually, uh, not play test, but to get a play of, because we're going to be doing a stream of this um, next month. And that is Tekanu, Obelisk of the Sun from Board and Dice. It's the latest from Danielle Tassini and David Turtsy. D Sorry, David. I know you pronounce your last name better than I do. Uh, so this, here's the best way I can describe this game without going into, oh, these mechanisms and all mm -hmm. this. If you wanted to like Teotihuacan more than you did, because there's a lot going on in Teo. Yeah. And... There's a lot going on in Takenu. Let's, I don't want it, to, it's not a streamlined version of that, it, but it definitely shows an evolution of both the design as well. It, it's a completely different animal. Like it's, it has nothing in common with uh, Teotihuacan. However, you, you can, it feels like you've been here before a little bit, but in a just better implementation is a better way to put mm -hmm. it the best way to put it and i really like that game but after a handful of plays maybe half a dozen a dozen plays i was like eh, there are things that you forget to do because i got to do this stuff over here and then i got to do that stuff over there right and then oh yeah don't forget about this right whereas in the version of tekenu that i played which the artwork obviously is far from final and all that stuff but okay i'm taking this action it's this area of the board I'm taking this action. It's right here. I'm taking this action. It's right here. Oh, that is way easier. It's just less fiddly and a lot more. It's streamlined in that regard. That's encouraging. From a design standpoint. Yeah. And it just, there are still things to where, like during the play, uh, I and I played this with, it was me, Rainer, and Stella from Meeple University. As well as as well as uh, Iraq from Borden Dice, and this was the first time that Iraq had had played this as well. And Rainer was teaching us, and we're all like, "Okay, all oh, that makes sense, makes sense, makes sense." Now, what the hell am I trying to do, right? You <laughs> yeah. Know, once you actually start, and there were still, we're all like, and we were all kind of like co-oping the game, like, "Oh, you could do this here," you know, sure. I just kind of because we learn. We do like a first right? time, yeah, 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 yeah. And even so. Man, <laughs> that is hard. And it, it, it's the right kind of hard that I want from a game. And yeah, it. 
I have high expectations at this point and high hopes for Tekenu. That's good. And I think uh, I think people are going to be really, really pleased with yeah. how that is. Now, obviously, there's still things that can change from a you know development standpoint as well as um, you know graphic design is got a long way to go still on that and everything. But mechanically, pretty sound and pretty good. Yeah, yeah. My really exper- enjoy that. My experience with Teo is fairly limited, but I definitely had the feeling of this doesn't feel cohesive in the way i want it to this one definitely is a step in that direction i'm not going to say that it's 100 percent, but i'm also not willing to say that it isn't especially after that just being a one-time play you know at eight o'clock at night or nine (laughs) o'clock at night at a convention over in a side hall literally we're in a hallway yeah we're all playing and like two of us are sitting on a couch touring you know so yeah i'm not gonna but i will say definitively you can see the evolution of Danielle as well as uh, David as designers just in the how just how smooth it played much more so than than, you know, a little bit less cohesive version mm. tail. Very cool. So as far as acquisitions, sir. What have you acquired of late? Yes, so I uh, my 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 uh, world of board games is uh, I have a by sort of self imposition I have a limited shelf space. I kind of try to keep it for my wife's sake and for my marriage's sake. Try to keep my acquisitions limited, and if I get a new game, I usually try to like get rid of an old game that I don't play as much anymore, and try to like one in one out sort of situation. Commendable, sure. Every Christmas, I kind of break the rules a little bit. <laughs> but it's Christmas. It's Christmas. So, yeah, I mean, my wife at this point has just been like, just get whatever you want. Like, I don't know. I have no clue what games you are interested in at this point. So, you, like, you just order your own presents. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I picked up, well, I had ordered the ketchup expansion for Food Chain Magnate, you know, back when they did the, the pre orders and everything. So, that actually arrived around that time. Uh, and we're very excited about that because Food Chain Magnate's definitely up there in terms of games I, I really, really love. Uh, kind of the the one drawback of that game, I think, is when you play it a bunch, you kind of see there's like, you know, two or three ways you play it, right? Like for, for the beginning strategies that you follow, and that's kind of determining a lot of how the game's going to play out. You know, things can change with the map and everything, but but the, the expansion and... I haven't gotten to play it yet, so it's sad, but but it seems to offer the opportunity for a new food chain magnate, which is so exciting for me because the the first time I played that game was such a like, oh God, you can do that? Oh, wait, you can do that? What? <laughs> like just a complete mind bending experience of like, oh, oh, you have all the money and I have no money. What <laughs> Uh, so there's just like so many cool modules in that, but even just like the new milestones, just, I really want to just try that out and see how it changes the scope of the game completely. You know, for my limited experience, um, massively is how it changes the game. Yeah. So they, I breeds life into a game that I think it was ripe for it. Mm-hmm. And I think it only benefits folks across the board with yeah. that. So definitely excited to try that. Uh, also picked up a copy of Nevsky. Uh, so this is a two player or solo, uh, war game, uh, operations, logistics focused game set in medieval Russia, uh, during the time of the crusades, uh, kind of around the same time as the Mongols invading Russia. Uh, I found out about this game actually through the war game Slack channel on heavy cardboard and, 
just people were constantly bringing up being like, man, Nevsky, Nevsky's really looking good and like really enjoying Nevsky. Like that looks really, really good. It's by the guy who did the coin games, you know, and uh, just kind of Eurofied mechanics, but just a ton of hype. So it's just like, all right, I got to get by this game for myself. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's got to happen. Uh, and yeah, I, again, haven't gotten a chance to play it yet. This but. is going to get remedied real, real quick. I will. This one for sure, because from a selfish standpoint, I want to play this yeah. as well. So I'm looking forward There's to this. Just we a, need to make this happen. I definitely am excited about making that happen. There's just a lot of ex- interesting ideas. So uh, a big part of it is that you have uh, each side has lords. It's the Crusader, sort of Westerners and the Russians. And each have distinct lords who you can bring into service. But then they have service markers. And the whole thing is based around a calendar of different seasons where you can play essentially over the course of... There are different scenarios of different lengths, but essentially the longest you can play is over two years. And when you have a lord enlisted, his service marker goes on the calendar, and that where he, where that service marker is is how long he is going to be in service for you. And as time goes on, he if the calendar meets the point where his service marker is, he is he's got to go. He's got to go home and deal with whatever crap is going on with the peasants there. And so you can keep him in service longer, but you got to pay him money or get him loot. Or do other things. And also, if he loses battles, he's going to want to get out earlier. And if he doesn't get fed, or his troops don't get fed, he's also going to want to leave earlier. Or he might just die and never come back. And so if he goes home and doesn't die, if he goes home, then eventually, after a certain amount of time passes, you could bring and list him. And he would come back also with fresh troops. Because any troops that died while he was out in the field, you can't bring back. But if he goes back home and you re-enlist him, new troops. Hey. hey. So so there's a really interesting like, okay, I should send him home now and I can like deal without him for a little bit. And there's also like certain lords who have certain smaller services or like, ah, that, that guy sucks, but whatever. He can like delay the event. Stall, stall. Yeah, right, you, yeah. You, you just stall until I can get my good guy out here. Uh, I'll be honest, just that mechanism right there, which you just said, I, I can't help but think of Undaunted Normandy to where you're like, oh, he's got to leave for right now and then bring <laughs> him back. And just like the cards sometimes in Undaunted Normandy, obviously the games are apples and giraffes. Yeah. I understand that. But there's but, definitely an element of like knowing when to kind of take a step back and when to retreat and when to go forward. And there's also a really interesting uh, mechanic of whatever lords you have in service each season. The, the game's played in seasons, essentially. Each season, you can only do a certain number of activations of Lords. And you get more activations in summer and less in the winter and spring. And so you actually do some kind of pre-programming of, okay, I want this Lord to go first, and then I want this other Lord to go, and then I want the first Lord to go again, and they can go up to three times. But you're kind of, you're stacking them up ahead of time, and the other, your opponent's doing the same thing. And then you're going in turn revealing each lord. And so if you screw up that order, it can go real bad for you. You can be like, oh, this guy was sieging the city, but now he's been routed. And the other thing is every time you have a lord activated and you either move or attack something, you got to feed them. And again, you don't have food for them. They're going to leave your service quicker or just die. <laughs> that, that programming and making sure you don't screw up the timing of that uh, kind of makes me think of Forbidden Stars, which, again, not anything else in common with yeah. that. But, oh, I did that in the wrong order. Ooh, that's going to bite you. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So, Good deal. It, so there's like a bunch of different things like that in this game that 
it's just it's not I wouldn't call it elegant because it's it is a bunch of stuff kind of mixed together. But I think it's looks fascinating. And like like I said, the war game slack has just been like raving about this game. So let's make it happen. Then yeah. I would captive audience and all that. So let's yeah, let's definitely do that. Yeah. And you got one other that you recently so, have acquired. Yes. One other was uh, Formosa T. Uh, I was actually on the stream for that. Uh, and I, and on that, on that stream, everyone else had already played it once. I actually showed up because you just needed another person for it and I had not played it before. And which we try and avoid. We doing, try to avoid, but, but life happens. happens. Yeah. But playing that game and on that stream and it was immediately just like, oh, this is so good. And I, this is great. Like, and I, I just, it's a very simple, like not super simple, but like a worker placement game where you're trying to make tea, like you gather leaves and you process them but the timing and the like having your your tea master goes on this processing track and develops the tea and then you can pull the tea master off and use them the same round once you've taken them off and the timing of all of that is so interesting and it was a kind of thing where i played it on the stream really liked it kind of forgot about it and then we played other worker placement games later on this the last year and it was like oh I remember liking Formosa Tea more. I should just buy that game. What am I doing? So I, bought, I, I ordered it from Taiwan. It arrived in a box covered in Chinese. My wife looked at it and was just like, what are you, what did you get? <laughs> so I had to be like, it's a board game. And she's like, of course it is. So how about you? All right. So acquisition wise, we'll start off with the games. And then there's one other little special gift that I I received recently. Uh, Ride the Rails prototype, obviously, along with the expansion. I didn't really talk about that. Uh, We didn't play the expansion, but the the map in there, I believe it's France and Germany, I think. Uh, So it's going to be ripe for expansions, kind of like Paris Connection slash SNCF could be or Age of Steam just little tweak here or there and, mm-hmm. and there's that but got the ride the rail or ride the rails prototype got another i guess you could call it a prototype they're public they're produced i don't know if they're published i don't know what the right terminology is on this but uh kevin mccurdy who uh along with chad Deshawn, runs age of steam con in kansas city and these guys have been part of a group or, or, or single-handedly designing Age of Steam maps for a number of years. In fact, Kevin designed the heavy cardboard Age of Steam map that actually is getting officially published by Eagle Griffin, which that's amazing. Can't wait. That's mm-hmm. I'm blown away by that. That's really, really cool. Uh, and Age of Steam Con uh, was last month or a few weeks ago. And a couple of maps came out there, one of which is Brummy Rails, which I got a kick out of the name of that. If you're a fan of the history of Age of Steam, you'll understand that. That one designed by Kevin, and I'm not sure if there was anybody else on that, but Kevin McCurdy. And then there's the uh, Southern China, which uh, designed by Vince Alvarez, which is uh, one of one of my very good friends, but also a, a member of the small council here. Uh, that helps out behind the scenes stuff. So we're going to be streaming the Southern China uh, next month for unpub day because it's, it's printed, but it's not officially published, but it got the okay from John board to do. So it's, it's kind of a, it's a, I got a copy of it here. So yeah, there's (laughs) that. Okay. Also got the, an updated map for Europa Universalis. Now Europa Universalis, I got a prototype of 
we, there's no way we're going to be able to get it streamed in time by the, uh, I don't think, mm. With LyriaCon canceled, we might be able to do it in time before the pre-orders close for that, but I can't promise that. But this just arrived uh, unannounced. Here, here's a new map for it. Oh, okay. So cool. There's that. And then picked up uh, a few games from Gamma. They were handed to me. Say, here, take this. See if you like it. The first was Traintopia. It's a train-themed tile lane game that I would argue that it's a little bit lighter than Isle of Sky, hmm. but it's 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 good for families, and I think it'd be interesting enough for like a thinky filler type thing. Like it's fine, yeah. it's uh, it's fine. Then uh, a couple of three games from the folks at WizKids tournament tournament at Avalon and tournament at Camelot, as well as Etten. So the first two are just kind of anti-trick taking games to where you're trying to not take tricks so trick taking game where you're not trying to take you bid nil right. if you will sure and etten is a i call it a partner but it's it's a team game to where it's it's teams of two if you will uh to where uh they compete against other teams of two it's a skirmish game card drafting skirmish game Kind of sounded interesting to me. And they have a new version of Sidereal Confluence coming out, which is going to be um, just a better component-wise and graphic design-wise. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. And yeah. he showed me that uh, when I was there at the WizKid booth, and that looked really, really good. That need an upgrade. <laughs> yeah, that it did. And I'm looking forward to playing it and streaming it and maybe eventually reviewing it, because I think that's a really good game for what it does. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, so... Etten, and then one that arrived, uh, I don't know, five hours ago, and that's Dark Ages from Board and Dice. We're going to be doing a sponsored live stream for that one before the Kickstarter ends, and literally that just arrived today, which that's not ideal, but that's okay. Um, this is where there is some symbiotic nature between some of us content creators out there. I saw John from John Gets Games. Uh, at Gamma and he and I were just, you know, standing around, just chewing the fat, just, you know, talking shop, whatever. And he had the game before I did because he does his stuff, obviously recorded and edited and all that. Whereas I live stream stuff. And he was like, yeah, I had a bunch of rules questions because of prototype and, you sure. know, it's, it's, it's far from, from finished now it's going to Kickstarter or it's currently on Kickstarter actually uh right now and so he got all those hammered out and he said if you want i'll send you the files i have as well as my notes and i will send you a link to the unlisted videos for that i made for the game which will help your learning curve for when you stream and i was like hey man i really appreciate that but that's not new and it goes in both directions. Mm -hmm. He and I have used each other's content before to help ourselves because why reinvent the wheel? Right. right? And again, we're, we're, we're friends. Yeah. And so, yeah, it makes sense to, to do that. And I think he does an amazing job. So thanks, John. I appreciate that. That's going to, especially since I have such an abbreviated timeline yeah. to be able to do this on, uh, it's nice to have that kind of relationship with just, good people out there so thanks john appreciate that but yeah dark ages looking forward to playing that and man that's got a lot of minis it's got a lot of plastic in yeah there. it does but uh from the way it was described to me sounds like an interesting game it looks interesting yeah we will see how it plays out 
So one other thing that I wanted to talk about that I recently acquired was a special gift. Now, um, this can be a little weird whenever I get a gift from a publisher, right? Because then it becomes a game, a, a, you know, that whole, oh, are you biased? Are you this? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And that that's completely fair questions. However, I think this is kind of a unique situation. And I, I, I thought this would be cool to highlight. Um, so the designer slash or the publisher, I don't believe that Alan was the designer on this. Um, but Alan Wong, who is the head of BG nations, they're the ones who published yin yang or yin yang, Mm -hmm. if you will, in English. And we played it and were smitten with it. Or we, we, we'd gone over, um, with, with Alan at Essen and talked about it. To everybody, we thought it was the like the secret game of Essen, the big hit of Essen, and it was the first game that we streamed after we got back from Essen because we we really believed that it was that good of a game and and should be highlighted from a super tiny little publisher um, over in Southeast Asia. Well, apparently our our little word of mouth and streaming it and all this uh, was really really helped them. Tremendously. They sold out at Essen. They never expected to be to sell out at Essen. And they have since sold a a plethora of copies of the game. And so Alan reached out and was like, hey, I really appreciate what you guys did. And we just did it because thought the game was really good and it deserved it. And he seemed like a good dude, right? And we like, I mean, that's kind of the benchmark that that Heavy Cardboard was based on to begin with was highlighting these games that nobody else knows about or talks about or anything. And so that kind of goes back to the roots of Heavy Cardboard. Well, he was really, really appreciative. And he recently sent me over this wood engraved box here. Um, And I don't know what the symbols say on the top. I do not read Chinese. But inside, if you are familiar with the game Yin Yang or or you've watched the live stream, uh, the game comes with a tortoise shell, Mm -hmm. which tortoise shells are are, uh, representative of good luck. And you put the coins in and, you know, it's kind of basically it's a way of flipping the coins. Right. It's just a completely extraneous but thematically perfect Mm -hmm. uh, accoutrement to the game. In this box, there are three different colors, or three different metals of tortoise shells, so that the one that comes in the game, plus these three, all players have their own tortoise shell in which to be able to, uh, I forget what the term is, but basically flip their coins right. or, or roll the dice, so to speak, uh, with it. And yeah, this was this was awesome. This He just, he sent it. And said, hey, this is just a token of my appreciation. I just wanted to say thanks for doing that. You didn't have to. And I thought that was awesome. That's that awesome. was really, really cool. Those are gorgeous. They really are. Uh, they, we're, we're both looking at it here in front of us um, here on the table and everything. And they're just really, really well done. And I thought that was a really cool token of appreciation that he sent. He didn't have to do that. And you know what? I'm not too terribly concerned about being biased towards other games for BG nations um, because their, their library is just not that extensive. And you know what? I think that was just a, a cool thing and I'm not going to say no to it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. So anyway, I just thought I would share that with you guys. And, and uh, also uh, 
publicly um, give a a huge big thank you to uh, to Alan Wong over at BG Nations, as well as uh, uh, Peter Lau, I think is how you say that, uh, of uh, Jing Studio. So everybody involved over there, thanks. That was really, really cool. Um, yeah, that was nice. So that's it for acquisitions. As far as the shopping list slash anticipation, what you got, Andrew? Uh, So as I mentioned earlier, acquisitions are limited in my household. Uh, But uh, I am very excited about the upcoming... It's not an expansion. It's sort of a re reinterpretation or re uh, another edition. or another in the series. Yeah, yeah right. Another right. in the series of Undaunted, where they're doing Undaunted North Africa, uh, and I believe it's the British against the Italians in North Africa. Uh, Which and- makes me sad that you know Rommel won't be in, you know the the because Ger- again Desert Fox and yeah. you know the the Germans played a huge part in you know the tank warfare there in North yeah. Africa but are there tanks I guess there, I should ask that so right there have been a few images released of this on uh, like you can see them on BGG and it shows clearly a tank card uh, and there's also a like a, another if you're familiar with the Onset Dawn series, like each card's supposed to represent like an individual member of a squad. And so there's a tank commander or something like that. Uh but essentially the I'm not sure how the tanks are gonna work, but just seeing that car was just like, well, I'm buying this. Like that's gonna happen. <laughs> Ooh, shiny tanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, I I, I bought I bought more for less, yeah. so I, I get that. I totally get that. Uh, otherwise, so I know that uh, there's going to be eventually uh, a Pax Ren re-release. Uh, I don't remember. Is it a Kickstarter? or is it I believe game? it's going to be a Kickstarter yeah. for my own game design. Yeah. So Pax Ren, Pax Renaissance is a game that I played, don't have a copy of, kind of regretted never getting a copy of it because you get you know, copies these days go for like $200 or something like that. Uh, well, apparently there's one for sale now from heavy cardboard. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but that, yeah, I mean, but let me the, know. in the PAX series, that one is maybe the most opaque, the most sort of like what is going on in this. But I'm not going to say you're wrong, but I would disagree. Okay. The number one most opaque, like I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. That would be PAX Emancipation for me. Uh, okay. And so that's one I haven't played. I mm. Okay. Pax Ren, though, also up there. Yeah. Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. And I yes. thoroughly enjoyed playing it and really would like to get a copy of it. And, you know, it's a small footprint, so it'll fit easily on my shelf, you know. Uh, it's a good sell. <laughs> yeah, sell exactly. it however you want to sell it. I gotcha. Yeah. And the next one for me is kind of just like, I hope this happens. Because so for me, I love like the the Madeira. I love I really enjoy Panamax like. Uh, Nippon, I was less keen on, but still enjoyed. Same. Uh, but like those, that series of games by those designers, I really, really enjoy. And Brazil has kind of been like, it's coming someday for like years now. Theoretically. <laughs> yeah. And had I gone to LyriaCon, I assure you, I was going to make sure that I saw something about it while yeah. I was there because it's put on by the Spiel Portugal guys, which Nuno Paulo, uh, as well as now the What's Your Game crew uh, with Veronica Mariano mm. live in Portugal. Mm. So the four employer, the, the four people that make up What's Your Game. Yeah. 
uh, are all there. But unfortunately, with it moving to the same weekend as HeavyCon, um, there is a exact zero percent chance of that happening yes. now. So yeah, so yeah, it's a bummer. But man, I have been wanting that game to come out for what feels like a decade. It hasn't <laughs> been. It's probably been what two years, I think, something like that. Right? Yeah, where they were going to put it on Kickstarter and then took it off, and it's just been. This is definitely aspirational, and like you know, if they're listening, hey, I'm going to buy a copy whenever it happens. So you know. You got one sale going. Right. I'm, I'm looking forward to it when it happens. When Not it happens. if, but when it happens. So, all right. Uh, so, how about you, Edward? Well, uh, I guess I will, I'll, I'll talk about two upcoming games, uh, one of which I've already mentioned, which is Tekenu from Obelisk of the Sun. I want to play that more. I want to check into that more. So, there's there's kind of that. Um, honestly, Nevsky, mm-hmm. I, I, I really would like to be able to get a copy. Uh, but if not, worst comes to worst, play yours. Sure. That's fine. Um, and the other one is one that I know I'm going to get a copy of, so I'm not worried about that, but I'm just really looking forward to this. And this is Imperial Steam. It's the new Alexander Huemer game. He's the designer of Lignum. Mm. Really, really looking forward to that. Uh, Clay uh, showed me some early uh, sneak peeks at the graphic design and, and everything, and I'm I'm stoked for that game. It's, it's, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that because I'll be honest, I was really smitten with Lignum, even if the artwork maybe was not ideal on that game. And I think that hindered the game a bit, but the design was really good. And Alex is just a really good dude. Mm. He's a uh, special needs teacher over in, ah, I forget what country to, over in Europe. And just a just a genuinely good human being. And it's a treat to see him every year at Essen. So I'm really, really excited to to I've been seeing pictures being he's posted on Twitter and all of this and to see the graphic design stuff and and some of the artwork for it. Yeah, really looking forward to uh, Imperial Steam from Alex uh, and Capstone. So, yeah, really, really looking forward to that. As far as looking forward to playing, I guess I could throw Nevsky in here too as well. <laughs> um, but what about you? What what are you looking forward to playing? Uh, yeah. So for me, so I kind of try. Big part of my selective process with my board game shelf is I try to play the games that I buy. Right. That seems sensible. It, it, it seems reasonable to me. You yes. would think. Uh, my huge blind spot with that is two-player games, specifically, especially two-player war games. Uh, I have kind of fallen down the war game rabbit hole to some extent, and a lot of the war, war games I've gotten have been two-player war games that I don't play nearly enough. And I'm, you know, thinking stuff like Sekigahara, which I get played every now and then, but not, I love that game. That's, like, that is also probably one I should have mentioned is, like, one of my favorites. Uh, it is just fantastic. But, uh, so I have a copy of Polis that I bought years ago. Never played it. Well, if I may, I have some good news. I have some bad news for you on this. The good news is your copy is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> However, Devere is coming out with a new version of this game uh, right around, I believe it's set for Gen Con right now. Mm. And oh my. <laughs> That looked really good. Yeah. And so I talked to the guys at DeVere and they were like, yes, we want to you to put this on the show. And I was like, good, because I really, really want to put it on the show. 
And I'm glad you said something because now we're going to wait to do it with the new version of the game. So good news. Me too. Bad news. <laughs> give it a couple months. All right. But, fair enough. But it is coming. I promise. Okay. <laughs> All right. So there's that. Because yeah. the funny thing is, is I have the older version of it as well. There have been two versions of it already. Yes. Uh, one of which was from Mercury Games. I can't remember if that was the first or the second. I think that was the second. First. Anyway. Remember. And there was one other. I have the first one, whichever that was. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, this, a lot of people have said, and I've played this before, that this is their all-time favorite two-player only game, Hard Stop. Yeah. So Polis, the fight for the, he- uh, fight for the hegemony is the full name of the game. Really looking forward to the new version. Yeah, that's been a game that has just been sitting on my shelf, taunting me. Uh, and I can see, I can see why they would do a new version of it because the, you know, it's pretty spare in terms of its artwork. Like it's just a bunch of cubes, and you know, not the prettiest game in the world, but it looks so fascinating as like this sort of variable market system of like resources being worth different things depending on what you, how you're buying or selling them, and this. It's a war game where going to war hurts you. Yeah, it's it a waro. <laughs> it very much is a waro, and uh, it, you can kill yourself very, very easily yes. in Polis. Yeah. Uh, another two-player war game uh, that I got a while ago and still have not played, Hands in the Sea. I've played the prototype. I've had it s- since it since then, essentially, yes. and I have I, the final. I This is another. I desperately want to get played. So here, um, uh, good news. You and I both want to do this we should make these happen okay that's great news yeah because that was a game i bought when the kickstarter happened and i was like yeah i want that a new version a, a sort of updated version of few acres of snow with like some more inch more mechanics and set during the fierce punic war yes yeah i'm in right uh, exactly same same thing for, with me and you know there's no halifax hammer there's none of those things right um and i've heard a lot of really, really good things about that game, and since I played it as a prototype, and yeah, I would love to be able to, yeah, be a part of that. Yeah, so it's like that. Yeah, Polis, Hands in the Sea, and also now Nevsky is ad- added to the shelf of well, there's a two-player war game I've got that's just sitting there looking at me. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of uh, for me the main focus I think for wanting to play at gates to the table are these uh, two-player games, which for whatever reason is just hard. Like some certain, I think for certain people, two-player games are easy. Other play- people, for me, it's more than two players is easy. I, I I think the reason for that, and we actually talked about this recently, is the fact that when you go to a game day, it just it's hard to get a two-player game yeah. played during a game day because then it feels like oh we're just gonna sit over here in the corner and play our own little game while you the rest of the group plays this. Whereas now, given the whole social distancing thing, I think this is actually a lot more attainable for us to do in mm. you know in the near future. So yeah, I'm in though. Uh, all of those sign all me right. up. And uh, how about you, Edward? Um, basically, uh, all 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 that. So yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> okay. I, yes. Um I'm in. to dig into this little game absolutely all right and, and by little i don't mean little i mean like small box Tiny, right yeah. yeah right there you go all right so here we go pax transhumanity 
published in 2019, designed by Matt Eklund, that is Phil Eklund's son. Artwork by Kareem Shakrun and Johanna Pedersen, published by Ion Game Design, as well as Sierra Madre, which mm-hmm. is, but yeah, you get the idea. Plays one to four players. Plays, it says, in 60 to 150 minutes. As far as availability and cost, hey, it's it's available on the Ion Game Design website for 44 bucks plus shipping, so wherever you are. But there you go. As far as plays and player counts that we've uh, experienced, I have about half a dozen at this point playing it two, three, and four players. How about you? Uh, a little, about a dozen maybe, and yeah, two, three, and four. Okay, there we go. All right, so you want to uh, you want to give folks a an overview of Pax Transhumanity. Pax Transhumanity is the latest game in the extensive Pax series, but it sets itself apart from the other Pax games in several ways. Instead of being grounded in a historical context, it is set in the near future where fantastical technology is just barely within reach, and the very nature of society and humanity is up for debate. Players will be researching, syndicating, and commercializing new technologies in order to advance the progress of humanity, while also placing themselves at the forefront of the new world being created. They will do this in a car-driven market that will change dramatically, and only those who are able to quickly react to this changing environment will be able to capitalize and prove dominant when the inevitable tipping point is reached. Yeah, I think that summed it up pretty well, actually. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really give a whole lot like what you're doing. But no, I think that that summed it up pretty well. Also nukes. Yeah. and (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Ken, there are nukes. (laughs) So let's go over the five factors that we think give the game uh, contribute to its weight. So starting out with uh, complexity or the, the rules overhead in this game. Yeah. So a lot, the complexity comes from it's like a lot of really simple things all put together on top of each other. And it just is a mess at first. Uh, it, it, everything's kind of straightforward for the most part, but commercialization is very complex. Yeah. It's like a 10 step process, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and, and for me, the biggest hurdle that I have found, whether this is for Pax Transhumanity or honestly for just about any other Phil Eklund or Ion, not Ion, but specifically Sierra Madre games Mm -hmm. is the terminology with these games that they use words that aren't you're not used to meaning what it is that these terms represent. And I realized that each of the pack series, even when you're doing a similar action from one game to the next, the terms are completely different to keep in with the theme of the game. And I get that, but Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Does it contribute to a massive rules overhead? Because, Oh, here you put this cube here and it does that. Oh, that's really all that is? Yes, that's really all that is. Right. It's really that simple. But it's all these words. Yes, it is. But that's all it is. Right. And it's like when someone's playing like, wait, I'm syndicating, but is that researching? What What is the difference between research and syndicating and something subsidized, but subsidized and syndication? That it's just... It's so terms. many. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel like the, the biggest rules complexity for the pack series in general is the terminology that each game has within its within itself and it just it really it's a massive barrier to entry yeah however once you strip that away this is a very approachable game in that regard so complexity wise 
if the terminology was literally, okay, you're going to get money. You move this cube here, which then brings this cube here, and you can move those other cubes over here as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. That's a whole lot easier than, okay, so here's what you can do. You can recall employees. You can, right. And which, again, thematically, it makes sense. Right. And I get it. And right. it, it all it's works. It's trying to be immersive. Yeah. But man, does it really make being able to not be intimidated by the rules complexity uh, of this or most any other PAX game. It just, it, it's scary. Yeah, yeah. And I've had people play this game and just kind of laugh about how absurd everything is. Just like, I guess this is syndicating, right? Or am I, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> Right, and this heat. Oh, heat becomes future shock. It's the same thing. It's just physically where it is on the table. Right. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah. So, once you get past the, the terminology, I think the complexity here really isn't, any worse than a standard medium heavy euro right i think mechanically the complexity is pretty low because it's just you've got money that you're spending and you've got work that you need to do in order to do things and it's just a matter of figuring out what requires what to do what and so i don't think once you kind of get it and it just takes a little time to get it but once you get it it's like oh that's simple. Some time. Took me three games. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. So now as far as the planning or, you know, the decision matrix, how far in advance am I having to look and, and how am I, you know, being able to play the game well in, in, in planning wise? Uh, okay. So I, the lot, this is a game, I think a lot like other PAX games, you kind of have to just ride the wave and deal with the chaos as it comes. But when you first start this game and you see the display of the market in front of you and all the idea cards, there is so much to take in and so much to consider. And I'm I'm not saying for your first game, don't think about that. It's too much. But when you when you kind of understand what's happening in this game, you have to keep in mind, okay, so there's this many color pairs in the market and they have the there are these abilities out, which might affect my ability to commercialize that. And I need to keep in mind what can I research and where can I research and can I research and commercialize in the same sphere because that would be easier to that would be cheaper for me to get the work done twice in the same sphere and you have to just absorb all of that and plus you have to look at your cards for your hidden sphere and decide well what color should I try to go for and it's just like you're you're kind of just standing at the edge of a cliff and being like uh, do I go down this way or this way and on top of that you're once you get to a certain level at this game not saying I'm there yet but you're then doing that for every player whether yeah. that's two player three player four player you're then okay this is what I'm trying to do yes and this game ultimately feels like and I I feel pretty confident saying that the most important thing that you're trying to do in this game is commercialize ideas. Right. All right. But to be able to commercialize ideas, it's a multi-step process. And I don't mean the action of commercializing like, oh, hey, I'm going to commercialize this idea. No, no. There are prerequisites that have to be met to be able to commercialize an idea, which again is going to be predominantly the ultimate goal, because that's how you're going to get the majority of your victory points yeah. potentially in this game. So if if we're going under the assumption that we're trying to commercialize, okay, 
To be able to commercialize, though, there are prerequisites that must be in place to be able to do that. First off, have you syndicated the idea? Well, okay. So working our way kind of backwards, to be able to commercialize, I will have already had to have syndicated an idea. Okay. So just kind of chuck that away and, and remember that. All right. Then is the idea, is the is the matching pair, the color pair, is it viable? Well, I don't know. Let's check. Well, within that viability, there are three potential ways that an idea could be viable to be commercialized, provided that it's syndicated. Okay. Then you go through. Okay. It's not viable that way. It's not viable that way. Oh, it's viable that way. Okay, cool. So it's viable. Now, if I have it syndicated, okay, awesome. And then do I have an employee to do the work? Not only that, but the employee, is it on the thinker side or is it on the maker side? Well, if I'm commercializing, it has to be on the maker side within a sphere. Now, I realize that if you are completely unfamiliar with this game, all of these terms, right. <laughs> you're like, what the hell am I even listening to? Yeah, we're speaking in tongues. But this is kind of what I'm trying to get at with a with a Phil Eklund game. It's a Matt Eklund, but in the pack series. Yeah. And so... With the amount of forethought and the amount of planning goes in, so if our goal is to commercialize, we have to make sure that we have an employee on the maker side. We have to have it sub. I'm sorry, we have to have it uh, syndicated, and it has to be viable. So to be able to make sure that all of those things are in place, I would say there is a metric crap ton of planning involved yeah. in this game. And you need to make sure you have enough money to pay for the commercialization. And if you want to expand it even further, how do I get that viability? Well, I probably would have had to research something in order to either get patents or get a think tank card that gets me that viability, which is means I had to make sure that the card that I wanted to research is at the bottom of a column and I had to have thinker work for in that column. And it's just, it kind of unfolds. Right. And so it's just layer upon layer upon layer. And yeah. so at the beginning of a game, it tends to be a very, very slow burn. It, you know, it's one of those games that um, if you were looking at a graph, um, the graph is like very, very close to the, is that the X axis, the horizontal axis? Mm. And it just kind of rides along there for yes. a while. And then all of a sudden, bing, right. it, 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 <laughs> it, you know, it just yeah. goes almost straight up yeah. as far as the, the pace of play within the game. And so the reason for that is there are so many of these prerequisites and then to be able to get the prerequisites, they have certain things that you have to do to different actions that you have to do to be able to ultimately commercialize. So while this game and much like many in the pack series is all about tactical being able to capitalize in a moment's notice of an opportunity, there is such an immense amount of planning that needs to go into what it is that you're trying to do in this game that, yeah, I would say the planning is extraordinarily high. Yes. Yeah. And, and where the majority of the weight, as well as the rules complexity, uh, comes from in this game. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's I've compared a lot to the beginning of this game is a lot like rolling a boulder up a hill and 
kind of the only joy is that you also see everyone else at the table rolling their own boulder up the hill. <laughs> so you're kind of all in together. And once you get once you guys get your boulders up, things come a lot easier for everybody at the table. That's a hell of a sell. <laughs> so here's the joy of the game. You see that rock, go push it up a mountain. Oh fun. No, 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 really. Don't don't turn turn the, the podcast off. It really is actually a really good game. So moving on then to the luck and random factors. Yeah, so I mean, like pretty much every PAX game, this game comes with a ton of cards and uh, about 111 cards total for idea cards. And you're only going to use 38 of those in the in a given so game. So about a third of them. About a third. Uh, and of those 38, those are shuffled together. And, you know, some of them are initially laid out and the others are shuffled together. Uh, there's the remaining ones are split up and the tipping point cards are shuffled. in. so you're dealing with a subset of a big deck and so you're not going to see every card in the game and you're going to see cards come out randomly in a random order that you can't exactly protect for. Right. So, you know, there are four tipping points, which if you're familiar with any of the other pack series, the tipping points are, are kind of like the uh, dominance cards. Right. If you're familiar yeah. in PAX Premier Second Edition or any, um, and I forget what they are called in PAX Porphyriana, but you get the idea. Right. Those are kind of uh, potential end game triggers or, or scorings or whatever it is right. for the various there are these pack big series. shifts in the game that yes. you have to be ready for. And right. you know, they're going to be in the bottom half of the deck. So, and you know, there's one of each, and you know, the last card's a plurality card right right so so there's that amount of randomness the you know you can't plan for oh i can't wait for this card to come out because there's a one in three chance that it comes out yeah. but maybe not and right. even within that you're not going to necessarily go through all 38 out of those cards so there's that preceded randomness right but that's again preceded so okay but and then there's the the luck of the order of which those come right. out right and then there is uh, the the hidden sphere selection at the beginning of a game. So what this is, is every player is going to random or get two cards dealt to them, two idea cards that are from out of the game. And of those, each card has a bar, a colored bar on either end of the card, which represents one of the four colors or the four spheres of influence within the game. Mm. And one of those you're going to be potentially scoring, only you are going to be scoring at the end of the game. Potentially. Right. So you have potentially not a lot of control over what colors you get options. Sure, you could get a perfect draw to where you have all four options. Then you weigh that against what's out in the market. And and depending on which finance board that you have, which call it which character, if you will, that you're you're playing, mm-hmm. uh, how that's laid out, and all of those things. Sure, then you can have, you know, your choice of the lot, but it's possible you get two cards with double bars, right? like two with green and two with yellow. Well, I guess I'm going green or yellow, or you could get, you know, that type thing to where there's a fair bit of, but a fair bit of randomness. But what we've learned is there's enough chaos within the game itself that it's, almost doesn't matter what your hidden sphere is that you choose because you're going to have to manipulate things to be able to capitalize on it throughout the game regardless of what you choose yeah there's a certain element of you you want to you know obviously if you pick a hit like blue as your hidden sphere you want blue to be dominant because that means any blue things you get are going to be worth three points to you right but if everyone else at the table doesn't want blue to be dominant and they're just 
constantly throwing other colors in, you got to go along with what the table's doing to some extent. Like you can influence a little bit and try to like maybe f- go your way if you, potentially, but to some extent you can only control it so much, right? Right. And and, and like I've I've taught play with people who have been like why can't you just pick the color you want? And I don't know exactly, like, I'm not the designer, Designer, I don't know the designer, and I don't know what the reasoning is, but I can kind of see that maybe if you did that and you played it a lot and people got really good at it, everyone just picked the same color, right? So there's got to be a little bit element of, like, you don't know exactly what everyone could have picked. Right, but even so, and it's hidden, so obviously you only know your own. Right. Uh, but even that is, okay, that's done at the beginning of the game. Right. Right. So really the only randomness that's in this game is the what ideas are in the deck to begin with right. and, and, and how, how they, they come, come out. out. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, honestly, as far as luck and random factors, I would put that pretty low as yeah. far as impact on the weight. I feel like it's it's random, but it, it doesn't feel like luck to me. Like, yes. I don't feel I like it's like, oh, that card came out and I win or I, I got a right. huge advantage. Oh, I got a great die roll. No, yeah. no, nothing like that. So, no, I agree. Yeah. As far as game length goes, um, to me, I was really surprised at how quick this game plays. <laughs> yes, this game will end faster than you think it will. <laughs> Inevitably. And now... You can AP the hell out of this. So let's take that out. Especially the first time you play it. You can do that in most any game. So let's just talk normal pace of play. The 60 to, what was it, 150 minutes? Yeah. Completely reasonable. And yes, a 60-minute three-player game is completely doable once you don't have to go over the rules. I had a game night where I went and uh, taught. There was one other person who was familiar with the game, but I basically taught two other people the game. Uh, we started at like six. We finished our first game by eight and we're just like, well, it's early enough to just play again. We finished it by nine thirty. Like we got this game can move, you know, especially if everyone is I think a big advantage of uh, the game moving quickly is people being familiar with the pack series to some extent and being familiar with these kinds of designs because this does feel different from other packs games and other Eklund games. But there's still that like weirdness and like the terminology stuff and just being kind of familiar with that kind of game helps a lot. It does. But even coming into it cold, hey, guess what? Your first game's gonna take forever. Okay. Inevitably. Yeah. That, you know, I if it were Madeira, it's still going to be a very long game, yes. is my yeah. point. Your first game, it's probably going to be is a bad example of how long the game is going to Especially take. Especially if no one has played it before. Right. If everyone's fumbling around and doesn't know what they're doing, it's going to be a slog. Right. But ultimately, once you get past the rules, 60 to 150 minutes, yeah, seems completely reasonable totally. to me. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I think the 150 might be a little high, even as a four-player game. So game length, nah, I don't think it adds a whole lot here as far as weight to the game. But this next one, the the getting it <laughs> factor, took me three games, legitimately three games to have any clue as to, oh, now I have a strategy on how to win. Mm, yeah, and it, it it legitimately took me. Now I am notoriously slow on the uptake when it comes to my first game. I'm usually the most lost out of most of the players in our game group. I just, I I pick things up a little bit slowly, even though I'm the game teacher, I'm still like, yeah, yeah, it's still, it Mm. still is a struggle, but it took me three games to go from, I have no idea how to play this game to, okay, now I have a strategy, 
but I'm still not implementing it well necessarily. And you can still trap yourself and you can still have pitfalls. Obviously that's, that's what makes these games good. But I had no concept of a strategy until three games into this. Yeah. I think for me, this was kind of a multi each game. I came at it from a different angle where the first game I was very much like, how do I even commercialize a card? How do I get, how do I do this? Yeah. Well, I, I, okay. I understand the rules. Yeah. But how the hell am I supposed to do this? How do I do this without losing all my cubes and going like getting everything to debt and just doing being dead essentially? Because you can totally enter a death spiral in this game. If you are not careful that this game, you could just fall off the edge because you just syndicated too many things, hired too many workers, put too much stuff in debt. And you have nothing, no money left. And you can dig yourself out of that, but it's going to take a long time. Right. And then it puts you behind the curve. And if they're, you're yeah. falling behind other players, et yeah. cetera, So the et cetera. first game felt like, okay, how do I do anything without falling in that pit? The second game was, okay, I know how to do that. How do I win this game? And the third game for me was very much like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing. What is everyone else at the table doing? And see, I, I'm about a game behind you on that because the first game, I had no idea what it, I literally was just, okay, what can I even do? Yeah. Like what is a allowable action mechanically? What do the rules allow me to do? And yeah. I'll just do it without any rhyme or reason, kind of. The second game, I was like, okay, so now I'm going to try and chain these things together, but I'm not really looking at what the outcome of those things are. I'm just, okay, I see I can do this. That leads to this. Okay, now I'm going to be able to commercialize. Awesome. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, probably not the card I would have necessarily <laughs> wanted to commercialize right now, but whatever. Okay, I was able to do that. By the third game, I was like, ah, okay. So I'm trying to get, oh, those are the victory points. Point is, I'm a little slow, I guess. <laughs> Whereas there have been other players that in the first game, they were like, oh, yeah, okay, I get this, no problem. And they pick it up in the first game. I'm, I'm amazed that anyone could get this game that quickly because it just, there's, a, I mean, we kind of explained already, like the process of commercializing the card is so complicated at first to really get all the prerequisites set up and get, and then to commercialize the card that you want. That's the whole, like that playing ahead for and that. Then it, and then it becomes a game of manipulating things. If you're familiar with the pack series and, and in this case, I'm going to go back to Pax Porfiriana mm-hmm. to where you are trying to manipulate the regime change, if you will, but manipulate things to where at the end of the game, this sphere is going to be the dominant sphere so that this sphere is the sphere that scores and I have a lead and my four points or five points is going to be enough to win the game compared to everyone else. Right. Being able to see that and then manipulate things to it, that's what you're trying to get to. Right. That's where I think both of us are at right now. It's just a matter of how well are we doing that, right? Right. So as far as the getting it factor, I think that's pretty high. I think it's going to take, for the average Joe, probably quicker than yours truly, but probably slower than some of the savants that we play with. So therefore, I would say that, yeah, I would say the, the getting it factor is is it contributes yeah. to the weight of the game pretty big here. I think the number one thing I would recommend to people, because I think the game, we've talked about how the first game can be really long, but if you can... 
playing this game two times in a row, I think would be super helpful. Yep. And and Martin has said this on the podcast numerous times that it, there are certain games that just really benefit for either playing immediately back to back games like mm-hmm. that or in short succession right, to right. just be able to cement the rules, especially in some of these that are on the, the higher end of difficulty. Absolutely. I think there is absolute merit to that. And I think it is invaluable when it comes to games in the pack series as well as just in general the heavier end uh, of the hobby i i think that is if possible the best way to go about doing it yeah definitely outside of having a a you know somebody that can teach the game uh, a gm somebody that knows the game really well yeah. teaching you and yeah. all that so that said ultimately where would you say uh pax transhumanity falls weight wise good sir I definitely would say it's a heavy game. Uh, I think it is comparable to other games in the PAX series. Uh, so PAX Porphyriana, PAX Mirror First Edition, PAX Renaissance, all those games. It's very much of that level because just like we've explained, like just there's a lot of terminology to wade through and the opacity in these kinds of games is it makes it difficult to not only know what your opponents are doing, but know how, what you're doing and why you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, and how you can do it, right? Yeah. And getting the rules to get out of the way. Um, yeah. And I think for the rules overhead, I think the amount of planning and the, okay, uh, so what am I trying to do, as well as the getting it factor, I think all of those contribute to, yeah, this is a legitimate heavy game. And I agree with everything that you said about putting it on par with a Pax Ren. Um and uh, uh, Pax Renaissance for and Pax Premier First Edition. Mm. I would like to point out that Pax Premier Second Edition, however, is in my opinion the easiest jumping off point. Oh yeah, and this is considerably heavier yeah. than that game from a just a, a a rules complexity as well as just an overall weight to the game. Even though I think Pax Premier Second Edition is depth wise is on par, but I just think yeah. complexity wise, this is, this is definitely well, a step up. That game is definitely, they Cole did a fantastic job of making that game approachable, you know, and that, that was a core ethos of that game. Whereas this was not, this, that. Is, not, this, yes. this is just, <laughs> Oh, I want to make this really good packs right. series game. And okay, here it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So ultimately I think we agree. This is definitely a, a legitimate heavy game. Yeah. All right, moving on to the stuff that comes in a box, right? The components, the graphic design, the artwork, the rule book, all of that stuff. I want to actually start a little bit out of order on this and go with the box size. Mm. If you're familiar with the PAX series, this is going to be a very, or it, honestly, if you're familiar with the Sierra Madre line of games for my on game design, uh, the box size, if you're not familiar with this, it's going to be shockingly small. I'm not, I mean, nearly pocket size. It's five inches by five inches by two inches, or almost call it 13 by 13 by five centimeters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the, this series is the biggest games in the smallest boxes, I think, in the board gaming world. Yes. You can, when you're carrying around, it can kind of feel like you're carrying around a black hole because it's just the density inside is <laughs> <laughs> all encompassing. <laughs> And yeah, and and shelf size. I mean, oh, yeah. you can fit 
a whole lot of these. It's fantastic for my life. Yes. Right. There you go. So, oh, and for, I mean, let's face it, box size is a, there's a reason that it's in here in the review because it plays a part in people's, yeah. do I want to pick up that game? Yeah. But five inches by five inches by two inches, that is a very small box. Yeah. And I'll mention that they sell on their website uh, a little play mat you can get that's very nice. Looks really nice and is completely a, extraneous. Totally extraneous, but like, you know, it is a nice little add on. But, then you got to carry it around with a box and it's like, well, I just like my little box. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and, and not to, not to, you know, disparage the play mat. It's yeah. very nice, yes. but you just don't need it. Yeah. But if you're one of those people to wear, no, I really, then absolutely. Absolutely. Do so. Yes. But it obviously is never going to fit in the For box. me, I just enjoy the feeling of, I can just pick this up, put it in my jacket pocket and take it with me. Right. I exactly. Go. All right. So moving. So with that said, with this tiny little box, keep that in mind components now you're talking a deck of cards right which you had mentioned was a hundred and there's 111 idea cards and then there's like the pat the splay card the um regime the sort of dominant sphere card Call it about 120 cards ish yeah. in this game yeah. right then there is which the 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 card stock it's perfectly fine it's it's what you would expect from a good quality card it is not a linen finish but i'll be honest haven't noticed it making a difference there. Yeah, they're perfectly good cards. The cardboard in here is is just normal uh, chits, yeah. if you will, and normal, you know, solid cardboard pieces. There are wooden cubes and wooden discs for whether they are agents, which the cubes are, or whether they are uh, companies, which is what the discs are. Perfectly serviceable. There's a handy-dandy little trifold. Bifold, trifold, uh, little player aid here that is double sided that works really well. Unfortunately, there's only one of these in the game, which I understand that this is probably going back to it can only be a certain weight to meet certain shipping thresholds. I understand that. But there's only one player aid in in the box. That's an oversight, in my opinion. Uh I feel like there should be at least two, one for each side of the table. Yeah, I would have at least like another sheet of just uh, explaining the impact icons and things like that, because that's something everyone needs to know. Right. And so and the fact that it's double sided. OK, fine. No big deal. I'm good with that. But yeah, the fact that there's only one, that's kind of a huge bummer. Uh, other than that, the 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 financial boards and the sphere boards, all perfectly fine cardstock. Um, yeah, I, I think everything about the component and just the, the component quality of it is perfectly fine. It's yeah. unremarkable and just fine. Yeah, very much. All right, moving on to graphic design now. What do you think? Uh, how do you think the game does graphic design wise? So I like the sphere placards. I think those are well designed uh, for the most part. They kind of clearly, you know, really show you, okay, these are barriers. These are utilities. This is thinker work. This is maker work. The arrows can be a little bit hard to follow. Uh, I kind of wish those were a little bit, I don't know if they were more just like clear which can where you can go and where you can't go so on that so what 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 you're explaining is whenever you have employees that are out on the various spheres so whether it's the first world or developing world or whatever you put them on to barriers which are stop signs out there on the placards which will reduce the cost 
of various actions, but also make various actions even available because you have to have employees which will do what's called work. And where they are on the placard dictates whether or not they can do thinker work for certain actions or other actions which require maker work. And there are certain uh, barrier locations on those cards that straddle the line between the two sides. So, you know, they can do thinker or maker work. But what you're talking about is whenever you, a, an employee does work, or they basically you're spending a resource, which is kind of that employee from where they are and going, moving physically from top to bottom on these placards, moving them down, following these arrows, because they can go to a number of different locations. They can either go down to the square boxes that are on the placards, which are utilities, or they can follow other arrows down to other barriers potentially covered by companies, et cetera, et cetera, or not. Or they can go all the way down to the bottom of the card, which is unemployment, which basically means they're just hanging out and not helping anybody. Right. Or you, for that matter. And so following those lines, wait, where can I go? So, yeah, sometimes it's clear. Other times it's like the lines cross each other and they intersect. Uh, and other times they don't intersect. And it's not always clear which one is which from a glance. So I'm, it's not a it's a pretty minor thing. You kind of get used to it over time. But still, at your first glance, like you look at the space placard and you're just like, what is going on here? There's a lot of inter- there's a lot of going over each other and going different places. So that can be a little bit weird uh my bigger complaint honestly is so the impact icons on the the idea cards are they work but you really have to it's a lot of memorization of like okay what is the black one with the plus sign mean and what is the one with the black sign with the rays coming out of it yeah they, they, they don't really correlate to anything of what it is they do i have no doubt that when they were created it made sense. Yeah. But I'll be honest, like I'm looking at these cards and it's been a day since I've played this and I'm like, Oh, right. That's the social resilience impact that allows you to divest one heat or future shock, either yours or an opponent's. And it's basically an icon of a family. Right. With like basically kind of just a very abstract three people with, nondescript heads and that's in a circle and that's kind of it and you're just like okay like that means no like how does that mean you get to divest or meaning you get to pull a cube back yeah so the impact icons are ultimately kind of the goal of the game because the goal of the game is the score of victory points and you're going to get victory points from either having companies in the sphere that scores at the end of the game and or the problems that you have solved within that sphere you get both of those things from the impact icons whenever you commercialize so going back to what we had talked about earlier commercializing is kind of the goal of the game because you're going to trigger these impact icons which then allows you to potentially get victory points as well as do a whole lot of other things yeah because i'm looking at this and roughly there are about 20 icons within the impact icons thereabouts. So having the graphic design of these impact icons, not being easily 
identifiable at a glance kind of sucks. Yeah. I mean, I will say I, the problem are just look like the chits, right? And the companies, the companies are a little bit. Yeah. See, okay, hold on. I and I okay. So the problems are square. Yeah. Physical square chits. Yes. The companies are round discs. Yes. The graphic design on this pisses me off. All right. Legitimately, this is my biggest gripe graphic design with this game because each of the sphere placards has a different icon as well as a different color associated with it. However, it is way easy for me to mistake a problem that is being solved versus a company that you can create at a glance. Yeah. To me, and both of those are victory points, so yay, that's great. However, those should be distinctive yeah. of one another, and they are far too close to one another, and that drives me batty because I keep having to do this. I look at it, look at the icon. Wait, is it? No, I can't. And now that I'm needing reading glasses, those are way too close to one another to, yeah, it just, yeah. That, is, that is a legitimate yes. graphic design just fail yeah. as far as I'm concerned. And I think, right, and I think they could be more distinct and, like, like I said earlier, there's the black uh, person with a plus sign that's different from the black person with the rays coming off him with a plus sign versus the red person with a minus sign. And those are three very different things. But you and, and I mean, that's part of the game, right? Like you just have to be able to like memorize what the impact. I kind of yes, mean, but hold but, on. No, see, no, I'm not going to give him a pass on this because, yes, you do have to memorize that. Yep. Should you have to? Should it not? Yeah. Should it not at least? help trigger right what these things do it should be easier some of them do a good job it is not a patent across the board fail yeah there are some of the icons that do a very good job of that which spe specifically i'm talking about the growth impact hey it, it it's basically the silhouette oh, uh, I, I keep wanting to say it looks like a dog target for uh or an echo target for uh in the marine corps when you're on the rifle range that doesn't help you guys much <laughs> but it's the silhouette of basically um from the waist up of a of a human it's, yeah. it's kind of a block a block silhouette and the silhouette is black with a white cross in the middle that says hey you get an extra agent so you get another cube from the pool awesome and then there's one that has that, that has those black rays coming off of it, which says, take a new agent from the pool and then place it onto a, a black heat square out on the mark. How does that yeah. help? Yeah. No. No. So some of them, and by some, I mean a couple of the icons do a decent job, but for the most part, yeah, not happy with that. That, And I'm, I'm really driving this home because... The impact icons are what you're trying to trigger yes. by commercializing. Right. So that is so, so, and, so important right. in the game. Being able to clearly understand what you're doing when you commercialize a card is so critical. And to be honest with you, you're not trying to telegraph what it is that you're doing. So being a, <laughs> looking at the board at the yes. same spot, <laughs> looking at the player aid that you have to share between all the players, looking back at the board at the same spot, looking at the, your player aid, you get the idea. Like, yeah. I just shouldn't. Yeah. All right. We, we, we've beaten the, yeah. we've beaten that. Well, All right. So I, I think, so that's your biggest gripe, right? Here's mine. 
you look at this, these color stripes, and I'm showing them Edward right now. These are all supposed to be green, and they are not the same shade of green. No, they are. Well, yeah, no, not at no. all. And, and, and on that note, along with that, I think the colors are too close to one another. I don't yeah. think they are distinct enough. And again, I'm not colorblind. I don't believe you are either. No. So I can't speak to if that was gone, you know, specifically for colorblind reasons. I, but even so. There's got to be enough within the color palette to be able to make those more distinct colors. There is. Yeah. Because because the first world is kind of a, a goldenrod yellow, if you will, or a gold or a yellow, whatever you want to call it. And space is kind of an orange-ish. The Space doesn't have to be orange, is my point. Like, it <laughs> yeah. could be a different color, right? right. It, it, it could be chartreuse, whatever. It doesn't right. matter. My point is... Colors are too close, and yeah, that's bad. This as is far bad. As- this drives me nuts because you look at it and immediately you're like, "Wait, is that green?" Because it doesn't look like that green, but it can't be something else, right? And it just, it's, it, it's not a thing that's going to like you're going to mistake it for something else. But still, you just look at it and you're just like, "Why? Like, why?" Yeah, the fact that every card has two disciplines on it, right? Whether they're the same, which are the stripes on the sides of the cards, they're either the same color or different color. Just the inconsistencies between them, just it adds another layer of, oh, wait, what is that? Which takes me out of the game, number one. Yeah. And number two, I'm expending enough brain power to be able to play this game. Not terribly. I don't want to waste yeah. any of that brain power going to things that just shouldn't be there. For me, it's just aggravating. because It's like the impact icon thing. I get like graphic design is hard it requires a lot of thought not everyone can do it well and i i i I, I, i'm not as i'm not saying i'm not apologizing for it i'm just saying i get it okay sure but this i'm like come on right you could they're all just there's got to be a color color. matching there's got to be something yes and then again the i think the colors are too close to one another so but moving on to the artwork now the artwork, it's all kind of like a CGI, like a computer generated like artwork. Is there almost cell shading type? It, I, it seems like I'm, I'm not sure exactly. It's, it does seem like a mixture of like CG, like computer graphic stuff and like some more textured stuff. But it's yeah, kind of it's all been uh, drawn and it's all, you know, these are all very abstract ideas to some extent. So a lot of stuff is more action oriented i guess and other things like something this is literally just a picture of some dots right super alloys <laughs> right okay there then there's neogen farming and exocortex which you know it looks like a guy has some sort of implants on his head and yeah. whatever so i honestly i think the artwork kind of fits the theme really well here. i think it does too i actually i really like the artwork the artwork has grown on me over time um i think for me, I one of the reasons I love earlier PAX games is because they are rooted in the history of the time period they're in, and they use the artwork of that time period as much as they can, and it feels very thematically grounded in that. Obviously, when you're dealing with a game about the near future, you can't do that because there's no, there's no pictures of that. So they do a good job of kind of putting you in that world, 
as much as they can do, right? And I don't think it's ever going to be as immediately grounding to me as like historical artwork, but it can't be, right? Right, because it's it's in the future. So yeah, yeah that makes sense. But overall, um, artwork's very much subjective. I think it fits. I think yeah. it looks good. I... I like the spread of like this very the mundane technology of like, oh, this is just like a better refrigerator versus like an enslaved AI God. That's just like this big blue glowing thing. (laughs) Stateless citizenship, which just shows a bunch of people surrounding the globe, holding hands and everything. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate the artwork. I think it works really, really well and it fits the theme. So, yeah, as much as we harped on the, the some of the graphic design. I think the artwork is is solid here. Is it? Oh, wow! Look at no, no. I, I I don't think it's any of that. But I think it it fits and it's it doesn't look cheap, which right. I think is what the main like thing you would be afraid of in a game like this would be, right? Yeah. Okay. I think that's a fair fair way to put it. Yeah, I think it fits and and well done on the artwork. Moving on to the rule book, clarity and uh, quality. Um. Well, I do this for a living, so I figure I'll start this. I have gotten very familiar with Phil Eklund games. All right. Now, I realize this is a Matt Eklund game, but it's still Sierra Madre Iron game design. It's still a PAX game in that regard. So I have gotten very used to his style of rulebook. So I'm able to parse it a lot more easily than I imagine most people that are coming into this new. So take that with a grain of salt. But the rule book is just intimidating. It's daunting. It's, I mean, the artwork on the cover looks welcoming. It, you know, it, it looks <laughs> right. good and everything. Welcome but, to the future, right? Right. So, but here. I'm going to open it up. And the first page is a thing from Matt Eklund that he wrote up kind of a, uh, like you have in a regular book, right? right. Um, I forget what you call that, but so it has a little, little thing he wrote on there. And then it has an overview, which, you know, is, is actually really well done. But then in a two, it goes into meta rules, rules about rules. The rules are divided into two parts, sequential processes and alphabetical glossary. The sequential processes are arranged in the order you meet them in a typical game. Setup, sequence of play, finance and work, actions, impacts, etc., etc. going on. Although useful for learning to play, the processes are not comprehensive without defining the game terms. Those terms and non-sequential processes are listed alphabetically in the glossary. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. That's perfectly fine. But then at the bottom of the page, (laughs) I would say the bottom 35% of the page is all context regarding certain words and certain things. And that goes on and on. on. But it's, and, and this isn't a critique of, you know, the, the, the politics or thoughts behind and, and, you know, uh, behind what's actually written there. But as far as the meta rules, like that's just got to be intimidating for somebody coming into this. And even though it's laid out, I think relatively well overall, um, it just this is an intimidating ass rule book. Yeah. hundred percent. I've read through a lot of rule books, especially 
joined this gaming group, I have gone through a lot of rule books on my own. And this was one of the hardest ones for me to go through and figure out what was going on at all. It is just, I think there's a certain element of, I don't know what you could like technical comprehension and like being able to write a technical document. Well is a skill and it, it requires some acknowledgement of, hey, we want you to read this and we want you to understand it and we want you to like go through and figure it out. And I don't think this has that. <laughs> I don't think pretty much any of the PAX series, again, uh, with a caveat to PAX Premier Second Edition yeah. here, um, which is just an odd duck uh, across the board here. But um, I don't I, I think that's that's universal for all the PAX series. And I would also say for honestly, a lot of other Sierra Madre, yeah. Phil Eklund games, whether it's Bios Origins or Greenland or any of those, it's an intimidating rule book and it's just, it's hard to parse unless you are familiar with the style of rule book that these are. However, that makes it an impediment to people like nobody is going to just walk by this on the shelf and be like, Oh, and then pick it up because that's not going to happen. You're yeah. going to seek out this game. I understand that. But the rule book is, is, is a hard nut to crack yeah. at times. And I'll be honest. That's why I do what I do. Well, I I was going to say not to, you know, uh, try to flatter you too much, but I think, one of the smartest things you did in the teach you did on the stream was just to reorder the actions in a way that makes sense. And like, let's start with the simple stuff yeah, here. All we're right. Building up to the more complicated stuff right. rather than just being like, well, you do this, you do, you know, you can fundraise and then you could research, which is a really complicated thing, but don't worry about it. Then we're going to hire somebody and then when we can commercialize, which is a 10 step process. And it's just, it's very un, like, there's no flow to that. And you did a good job of making a flow to how the game works. Right? I appreciate it. But I, I mean, but, but all, all rule book editors out there, please continue what you're doing. That way I have job security. <laughs> um, but no, seriously. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just a hard rule book because it's a hard game. Again, it goes back a lot of it flow, kind of like what you said, but also to terminology. Yeah. And it's just right. getting your head around some of this stuff because there are other games of similar. Uh, I'll, I'll bring up BIOS Origins. I was started to read the rule book and within the first paragraph, I had to look up three words <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, like that intimidated me. Yeah. And I, I do this for a living. So I. I don't know. It's a hard rule book. It's it's a rule book that tries to teach you the game as well as be a reference document. That is extraordinarily hard to pull off and I I'm not sure that this is uh this is that. I don't think it it pulled that off as well. I, as. I still think it could have been that and still been better laid out. Like I think that I think someone I I think like an editor could have looked at that and said this should be in this order or this should be organized in this way. And it would, and it could still have the references and still have the glossary and still have like all the terminology and it would still function better as a rule book. Game's been out now for about six months. 
There's 83 rules questions on BGG, <laughs> which I'll be honest, it's kind of lower than I expected. Um, it, but I will say that the rule book does a very good job of answering the questions. Yes. Like it teaches, like the the answers are in there, right? They um, are. almost universally. There might be a couple of edge cases here or there that I can't think of off the top of my head. Yeah, but for the most part, it does a good job of hey, it's in there. I mean, it's the prego of rule books. It's in there. <laughs> Showing my age on that. <laughs> that said, and while we're talking about kind of the rule book, there's the player aid, singular, one, that comes in the game. Again, just one of them. But there's a flow chart on this that shows a, okay, kind of like what I was, okay, I want to commercialize. Do you have a syndication on the idea already? Yes or no? And they use blue and red lines. I understand red and green colorblind. I get it. But this, I struggle with that, which is yes, which is no, because it's blue. Blue is not inherent to me. Yeah. Being go or yes. Yeah. But I understand because the colorblind stuff. So there's that. Okay. And it's a flow chart that does a really good job of things. However, there's an error on the flow chart at the end. I'm sure people are going for those that don't know. Uh, at the end of the research process on the right side, there's a decision box that says discard a card, uh, which has two arrows. The blue one is may install up to two patents. The red one may not install the think tank, discard the card from the game. The red arrow is wrong. It's pointing at the wrong thing. And that's not ideal yeah. when it's a player aid. Yeah. Um, it, it, it has been addressed, but you, it's, the player aids right there's no patching the player aid in the box (laughs) right so just be aware of that so um yeah that's unfortunate and again i ion game design is a partner when it comes to playthroughs but not when it comes to reviews so yes in that regard but i'm still gonna you know call them to the carpet for these things and it's just unfortunate Yeah. yeah that's a bummer um because the player aid i think does a very good job flow chart wise of being able to okay going left or right okay cool good and um it's just yeah it's just a bummer that that wasn't caught like yeah come on how does that stuff get missed yeah it's kind of like the color matching on the colors that's the factory but ultimately it falls on the publisher come on yeah man. it just feels like so disappointing to see it right right and it just yeah, it's just, it's frustrating. Yeah. Like, the game's hard enough. Don't make it harder on me. Yeah. Come on. And, like, I really like this game, but I still look at that and I'm just like, Ugh. Right. <laughs> like, it just it deflates me to some extent, you know? All right. So, as far as setup, teardown, teaching, and learning goes. Uh, so, setup and teardown is pretty fast because there's not many components uh, what you, in terms of what you've got. You have to shuffle a small set of cards and lay out a market, put all the placards and chits. Uh Teaching, I think we've kind of explained, can be a bit of a process, a bit of a pain, but can be done relatively quickly. Uh, I've actually taught this game at a game day here at HCHQ in about 20 minutes. Uh, so it was rushing a little bit, skipping over some stuff, but still worked pretty well. Uh, and I think there's the terminology part of it. And I think also, and again, this comes kind of comes back to if you're familiar with PAX games, you're used to this. But when you're teaching a game to people... If you being able to clearly explain, here's how you win is the most 
the easiest way to get someone to like under to understand what you're okay, doing. Okay, yeah. Hey, what, what's the goal of the game? Yeah. Okay, you're gonna score points right. doing this, and it's like so you're gonna score points, and you're gonna want points in the dominant sphere unless there's a singularity in which case you're going to want future shock unless someone gets the fifth company in which case they win by tycoon and it's like again multiple victory conditions multiple end game states that's a very pax thing and people who are familiar with those games understand that but if someone is totally new to this stuff it requires a fair amount of prepping them for it right and and it, it's funny when i was teaching this it just it is non-traditional in that regards because it's so different like okay so the goal of the game is to score points. You're going to get points from these various things, but only if those are the end game conditions, right? And so it's just, it's hard to teach a game without having a goal in mind. Exactly. And so being able to do that in a way that going through the actions, like, okay, normally I would teach you how what your goal is and then kind of work backwards i can't really do that in this game so just bear with me and it 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 can be a bit of a struggle because it's so unorthodox yeah in that regards but overall the game is not that hard yeah once you get past the terminology well the depth is there but the mechanics mechanics of, of it i feel like are really approachable once you get past that barrier of terminology but as far as setup and teardown it's a handful of baggies and a stack of cards. Yeah. Personally, all I do is I take the plurality card, the four tipping point cards, the four dominant sphere cards, kind of put those either at the top or the bottom of the deck. All the others are idea cards. And then every player gets their own cubes in their bags. You got one bag for the different problems and then one bag for the market tiles and then throw it all in a box it's really not hard set up and tear down yeah five minutes yeah very um quick. yeah it really not bad at all all right so in theory this is the meat of the review but i feel like we've covered a huge chunk of this already <laughs> but that said in theory, we like this game. Well, I was going to say, I feel like we've been tearing the game game down a little bit, right? Well, so. no, I, I think we build it up at the beginning. We, we we highlight the warts, but now we also get to highlight the stuff that we makes this game enjoyable and why we like it. Yeah. So I've mentioned a lot that, you know, like other, this is a lot like other PAX games. And I think it's like them in, in a lot of ways because the joy of it is figuring out the puzzle of you have a board state and you have the other players and you're trying to figure out their motivations and you're trying to figure out your path through this. And it's sort of this ordered chaos that you're wandering through. Uh, someone could be commercializing a card because it solves a problem that matches their hidden sphere or because it gives them future shock to disrupt the card display or because they want a specific color in display to change the regime. And when you can figure out what someone else is doing and why they're doing it, it is so rewarding. <laughs> it is the greatest feeling. It really is because it, it's almost like I go back to poker a lot because of what it is I used to do, but it, it really is kind of being able to not only read what they're doing, but then potentially manipulate your, your opponents into doing something that, you wanted them to do right but without them being entirely aware that you're manipulating them right. to do that yeah the, the ideal thing is not necessarily to stop them from doing it but to capitalize on them doing it and that's like so much of what this game's about 
because there's it's harder to stop someone like from just doing something but if you can kind of just use it to your advantage then. right right and, and this game uh as it, other people have said before that there is a larger emphasis on market manipulation within this game than in other PAX games. Whereas one of the things that makes a PAX game a PAX game is the variable market Mm -hmm. and the market tends to be on a conveyor. So, okay, you, you know, things generally tend to get cheaper as they move on down conveyor down in the market. This is the most stable market of any of the PAX games that I've played that I can think of at least. And I feel like that gives the game the ability to manipulate the market more than, okay, I'm just going to wait till this conveyor's down and it's cheaper so I can buy it. Right. Whereas in this game, there are actions that allow you to move a card from a certain sphere to another sphere if there's an opening. And then if there are multiple openings to be able to then place it exactly within that sphere of where you want. There's going to be a number of reasons why you're going to want to do that. But that is unlike any other PAX game. Yeah. As far as that market manipulation goes. And I as somebody that likes market manipulation games, I I love that aspect of this. Yeah, there's just so many clever things you can do, like moving a card from a cheaper spot to an expensive spot so it's harder to syndicate for other players or taking a card out from a column so that you can get to research the column that you want to, because you can only research the bottom card in the column. Right. So you clear out the ones underneath it. So moving a card from the top or in the middle of one column into a bottom column that you then have an employee, which is on the thinker work side to be able to uh, research a card out to then be able to have a more, uh, to be able to create viability which is one of the prerequisites for being able to commercialize a card, which again is the goal to be able to get victory points. So yeah, that market manipulation can be both. It's awesome to be able to do it yourself, but it's also a way to defensively in some ways play the game to where to be able to prevent other players from doing certain things. Right. And another thing I really love about this game is like I mentioned earlier, you know, when you start the game, you see the whole market laid out in front of you and you just have to take it all in and you're just like, what do I do with this? And, you know, the upside is that I can do so many things with this. Like there's so many pathways and options and things you can do and the market, like we said, you can manipulate it in so many different ways and you can commercialize different cards and go for different abilities. And do I put this in my think tank or do I go for patents? And what kind of manipulation do I want to do with display? And do I want to wait for someone else to put something in display? And do I want future shock? And there's just so much. And there's so much ways. There's so many ways to sort of express yourself while you're playing it. It's just, it, yeah, it's just such a rewarding in that way because there's, it can be intimidating, but it can also be rewarding. And in that regards, the story that this game tells, which again, I, I've i said this more times than I can count, theme really is secondary to me, if sure. not tertiary, uh, in my enjoyment of a game. However, the theme in this game kind of, in the story that this game potentially can tell, is can be rewarding. 
But because it's not set in a historical period, I do feel that players have to work a little bit to be able to get that story out of it because some of these things like (laughs) just like, I don't know what these words necessarily mean, like bacteriophages. Yeah, I, I uh, that that doesn't come up in conversation really often for yeah. me. Joseph's computers. I don't know what those are. I right. can read the flavor text and learn about them. Well, and there you go. So yeah. the flavor text on every single card tells you about what these are, and so that that flavor. So what it is that the ideas that you're being able to syndicate or research to eventually potential and or and or commercialize making these tangible real things that exist in our world now. I think it's a pretty cool theme and the fact that it's not post-apocalyptic because a lot of mm. games, not all, but a lot of games set in the future tend to be it's a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Or, you know, fallout right. or you get the idea. Or it's like a corporate nightmare, like, you know, cyberpunk thing, like Blade Runner-esque thing. Right, right, right. Whereas this game can be a lot more of a positive thing because we're solving the world's problems in this. Whether it's, hey, we're solving pollution or global warming right. or we're solving world hunger Stuff like that. Right. Or we're overcoming barriers in different worlds. Like there's cynicism in the first world, which I think is a funny. That's the oh, main that's, problem that's hysterical. Right? <laughs> right. But also there's like corruption and piracy that we have to deal with in the developing world. And, you know, big brother and ID theft in the cloud. And so we can, by putting companies down, we can s- sort of make these barriers go away and overcome them and maybe, you know, make the world slightly better. While also reaping a profit from our company. Well, obviously, and and the characters. I, I use the word characters kind of loosely because each player has a financial advisor board or a financial board, which is kind of funny in one way. So the four characters that you're going to be playing in this game are a doctor, a colonel, a citizen, and a blogger. The blogger one really kind of cracks me up because the other three I make sense to me, yeah. right? But the amount of money that is abstracted in this game are stupid big numbers, yes. right? These aren't a dollar. These are millions, if not tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Whenever to solve world hunger, right? it's not going to be pocket change, yeah. right? So the fact that these four <laughs> everyday people get these patents that get created that then give them a- gives access to all this money. It okay, that's a bit of a far fetch yeah. thing, right? And they're forming all these companies and yeah, all well, right. I, so that's where kind of the suspension of belief right. kind of takes it for me. But outside of that, I like the idea of the way this the theme ties the story and everything kind of plays together in that regard yeah the way they describe it in the rule book is that everyone starts with a patent you know on the patent board and the way they describe it is like you're just someone who made a really valuable patent and you've got a decent amount of money from it and let's see what you can do with it and it's kind of like a little bit absurd yeah you're right it's still a but uh, but nonetheless the fact that it's kind of a positive future like yeah big we're still trying to we're 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 still trying to profit don't get me wrong we're trying to do the best (laughs) out of all of us right however we are solving the world's problems so it has a positive just 
there's it's positive, but there's like a layer of cynicism <laughs> to some extent, or a layer of like, well, we also money matters. <laughs> It's capitalism, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's yeah. an game. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and we'll leave it there. And in our notes, you had one of the uh, like thematic themes, little funny aspects oh, of this. Right? Yes. Well, I so a card in here is called Devolutionaries, and it just shows a picture of someone with a jetpack flying through the sky and. The only impact of this card is it solves mental health. And I... Because, dude, if I could fly with a jetpack, yeah. my world would be a little Everything's happier. Everything's fine, right? right. <laughs> that's just... That's, that is so funny to me. As somebody who's currently in therapy, not making light of it, but I'm just... Yeah, the, that's not quite how it works. But not yeah, quite. That, <laughs> But nonetheless. But yeah, no, I... Again, it, it goes back to theme, right? Um, a lot of it you have to look for. Yeah. To make the story make sense. But I think it tells a pretty cool story in and of itself there. Another thing that I really like about this game is when you're able to actually commercialize something in this game. Holy cow, does that feel good? So I'm going to run through the, the process of commercializing. So mm-hmm. it's a 10 step process. Okay. Do you have syndication on the idea already? That's number one. Is the idea viable? There are three different ways in which a idea can be viable. After you've done that is the maker. Do you have an employee on the maker side of the developing or of the sphere where the idea is provided you do then is the employee subsidized? If so, if it's subsidized, you pay the barrier cost. So how many stop signs within that sphere do you see? I see four of them. You pay four bucks or whatever the for money. Mm-hmm. Okay. If it's not subsidized, pay double the barrier cost. It's now eight money. Okay. Let's let's assume we're we're through all that. Awesome. Once we've paid the barrier cost, then we have to expend maker work. What that means is the employee actually moves down, as I mentioned earlier, down the placard. Then finally, you get to perform the impacts, meaning you do all of the icons that are on the left side of the card, top to bottom. And universally, if it has a plus, that means you do and. And if it has a slash or the word or, you do either or. Okay, that all that makes sense. Then you have to orient the discipline. Okay, what is that? That's really simple. You either turn the card. Uh, you know, 90 degrees this way or 90 degrees in the other way, depending on which color strip or which discipline you want visible in the splay. What's the splay? The splay is what is deciding a what is the current dominant sphere as well as what is viable. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So making other things viable. Okay. That makes sense. Then. Did the card come from your think tank? If so, you then have to move that card out to the market to replace where that card was. If not, skip that. Okay, easy enough. Did you spend patents to make things viable? If so, you now have to divest them. Okay, that's a lot of words. What's that mean? Move the two cubes that you use to make the to commercialize back onto your player board. Oh, okay, that's easy enough. All right. Then was the maker from a utility? 
Well, those utilities are those square icon areas out there on the uh, sphere cards. If it came from one of those, then you have to divest all agents without generating patents because you're in. It does say on the sphere card. So graphic design, well done there as yes. a reminder. Hey, if you expended a maker from a utility, it says no patents. So, okay. However, if it didn't come from a utility, cool. The cubes that were on that card from having syndicated those ideas those now become patents for the respective players. And those patents, what's the value of a patent? Depends on what color disciplines are visible in the splay. And you get one money, they're worth one money for each color out there that matches what the patent is of the matching color, depending on how you oriented that card in the splay. Then check for a regime change. Don't worry, we're almost done. So at the very bottom of the splay, there are whatever the three bottom cards are out there, depending on the colors that are visible and the makeup of the composition of those colors dictates what the current regime is or what the dominant sphere is, if you will, if there is one. So if it's familiar, if you're familiar with Pax Porphyriana, that's going to sound very familiar with you or to you. If not pretty simple, if there are more than one, but not all three of a certain color, that's the dominant sphere. Put that in. And it's going to have some sort of rule-breaking abilities and, and things that are universal for everything. If they're all matching, do move it to this. If they're all different, move it to this. Okay. So then, is the end of the game triggered? Was it one of the tipping points? If the answer is yes, the game ends. If not, move on. That is commercializing. So, yeah. Feels pretty damn good when you're actually <laughs> able to commercialize an idea and make it a viable, not a viable, to make it a reality yeah. within our world. Right. And I think that's, if you stop and think about it from a thematic standpoint, like that is awesome. Like that's just a really cool idea it's and an it feels really damn good. Right. And it should. Yeah. So it does. So well done there. Yeah. You permanently changed the state of the world by doing that. And it feels like you did. That's a positive thing universally, right? Yeah. So that, that and that that's where that that positivity with the theme ties in there as well. Yeah. All right. So between the everything that was on the front end of the of the review as well as all that, I think we've covered a lot of what makes this game a lot of fun and really enjoyable. But on the flip side, there are some things here not to like that we haven't covered graphic design wise or whatever, but sure. you want to start it off? Sure. Uh, so I kind of mentioned this earlier, uh, but this, the restrictiveness of everything's tight in this game, right? Like money is tight. You're constantly running out of money, which means you can't need to constantly fundraise and fundraise. You're only allowed two actions in a game or in a turn. So when you fundraise, all you're doing is manipulating the cubes on your player board to be able to then take action. So it feels crappy right whenever you have to fundraise but you learn wait this is just an integral part of most of the theory or of the strategies but not all yeah. within this game so it's just a 
something you just have to grin and bear. And yeah, it and it doesn't feels, feel good. At no, first. because it feels like you're spinning your tires, right? right? Oh, I got a fundraise. Right. We, I get right. to double fundraise. That was a fun turn, right? But the if you don't do that, you get suckered into thinking, well, I should be doing stuff on the board, right? And so you just throw out all your cubes and syndicate everything and hire workers, and suddenly you have no actual worker agents on your placard and you can't do anything because agents on your placard are your capital that's your money that's your money so but they're also those things that you just said they are things they are when they're out on cards they're syndicated ideas when they are out into the spheres on, on the placards they're employees so you only have a finite amount of those. And if you go hog wild with it, you better have a way to be able to create money, yeah. whether it's through patents or something else. And there are viable strategies to be able to avoid fundraising. And you can run that line real, real thin. But God help you if you go too far past thin. Yes. And all of a sudden, you can't make money. Yeah. And if you can't make money, you weren't gonna be able to do a whole lot in this game. Yeah, and we have played games of this with people who were visibly frustrated by this and just felt like I can't do anything. Why am I even playing this game? And that's a real risk of when you're playing this with someone who hasn't played it before. But it's kind of their own fault because they got greedy. They wanted to do things instead of right. quote unquote waste actions fundraising. Right. That, yeah, the, that's the thing. You have to understand it's not a waste. It is never it is almost never a waste to fundraise. Because <laughs> money money is tight, cubes are tight, action like it is super important that you have some liquid amount of money, especially in the early game and even going forward through most of the game. Um and like I also kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you can't, you can do a lot to affect your opponents. You can do a lot to affect the board game state. But if someone gets a lead, uh, especially with a tycoon victory. And tycoon victory is? is If someone is going to, well, everyone comes only with four discs, which are your companies. And if someone were to place out a fifth disc, they just win automatically they no, started no five scoring, companies no congratulations it sounds really easy oh i just got to start five companies but that requires you to then commercialize at least five times and each of those have to have a company that you're actually yeah. putting out on the board which a lot harder than it seems absolutely yeah but it is a thing where it can kind of sneak up on you if you're not paying attention and if someone has three or four companies already and the game's not over or not going to be over soon, it can basically be impossible to stop them from getting company. Like what I've learned is it's not worth trying to block them from commercializing a card that gives them a company. Cause that's probably impossible. What you got to do is just end the game. Like just get to a tipping point and make it happen. Cause you can't, necessary you can hinder people you can slow them down but but you can't stop them right and often you doing that isn't helping you it's helping everyone else at the table so what you want to do is try to a avoid that right like <laughs> i was just gonna say right don't let them get don't let a them get that lead point. in which oh i uh, that's not good yeah or try to make it so that them doing what they're doing allows you to end the game quickly and be in a good position when you do it. Or there have been instances where I have been well behind to where I'm like, this seems on the surface 
hopeless for me because I'm behind looking at your guys's problems that you solved in the given spheres, which are victory points, as well as your company lead. Maybe I only have a company out there or maybe I have none, whatever. However, there are ways that you can be clever to manipulate this game state to end the game with a or, or trigger the end game in a certain state that none of that matters. Yes, right. <laughs> and then you're able to win through other possibilities. Like, for instance, if the cutting edge, which are the bottom three cards in the splay, when the game is triggered, are all the same color. So they're all blue, they're all yellow, whatever. When the game is triggered, the game ends in what's called a paradigm shift. And when a tipping point is then trigger triggers the end of the game and they're all the same all of those companies and all of those problems that people have solved aren't worth <laughs> anything all that matters is the amount of cubes that you have in the splay on black markers or in other words future shock or or on white markers right. for that matter so basically any cubes that are in in the splay which you will have had to have invested those when you actually syndicated going back to that planning thing. So there are ways to mitigate. There are. But it's not always clear how, and it's not always easy. And it, you know what? In some cases, it might not even be possible. Right. But there are ways. It's not just, oh, so-and-so has too big a lead. We should just call the game. It's not like an 18XX no. where, oh, they have a lead. Okay, we can call the game right. at this point. And yeah, that's the other thing. Like this game ends quicker than you might think. And someone could be very close to a tycoon victory or could be very close to winning, you know, to companies and problems. And then suddenly the right tipping point card comes out and they get nuked to hell back and lose everything they had. Or somebody finds a way. And this is what happened in one of our games to where I was hopelessly behind. And then I saw this really clever way to be able to, oh, wait, I have a special ability that allows me to move a card in the splay. And if I do that and then I'm able to do that tipping point, all of your guys's lead doesn't matter. And I win, say, two to one to one. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to try and do that. And you guys are focused on your own stuff. And you're probably maybe not seeing a clever play or something like that. So it can happen. Yeah. Is, is the moral of the story? Yes. Don't let people get to that lead. Yeah. However, not all is lost. Right. It, there are often actually. ways to get out of that. But sometimes don't let someone get that far ahead is really the moral I feel like of that. So a downside here potentially for folks is this game is slow. Um, mm. It takes a, a lot of actions to be able to do the things that you want to do. So I just, I, I just went through that whole thing about commercializing to be able to commercialize. You have to syndicate to be able to syndicate. There have to be certain prerequisites made. Um, you have to pay the market cost. And then you have to put the cubes out on white heat or the, the the white squares that are on that card out there, as well as putting out a cube out there. So you're going to have to have the, the cubes available. So then once you've syndicated, then you have to make it viable. Well, how the hell do I make things viable? And it's just, 
it's such a slow kind of methodical process of being able to do things that I think that the pace of play, especially in the early game, is going to turn some people off. Yeah. I don't mind this. However, when somebody thwarts your plans because they, I don't know, they research a card out of the market, meaning they one of the bottom cards that I was planning on maybe commercializing or I was going to do something else or it shifts things in a way, they move a card and it just... right. Damn it. Right. I just went through all this work, multiple turns to be able to do this, and now I can't do it. Yeah. Son of a. So it can be frustrating in that regard because it's a slow process. And because it there's no hidden information outside of your hidden spheres, there's no like big moves, right? And right. like other than somebody sees something clever that they can do. There isn't there isn't that hand of cards. There isn't that tableau that anybody is building. So there aren't any of those really big moments of, you know, just grandiose feel good moments. Like, look at what other than, oh, hey, check out this clever thing I'm about to do that you guys could have seen if you would have seen it. It's all right here. That type thing. So that might not always feel the best. I think the grandiose moments in this game might come from some of the powers in the cards are just crazy good and sometimes those can lead to outrageous moments like things that are just like oh i can commercialize something without syndicating it so let's just commercialize yeah, let me, like crazy it, right just boom 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 <laughs> yeah. oh, awesome all right that yeah. was fun that was cool <laughs> so there's there's things like that can that can be pretty outrageous but yeah for the most part you've got two actions a turn that's pretty limiting in terms of what you can do in a given turn and so the, the, the pace of the game, and I, I think I actually kind of like that, that it's just like this slow burn for the first step. And oh, then it's same like, here. I do boom. as well, right. <laughs> but but yes, that will definitely turn some people off. Um, and so I think for me, the only other thing I would say is that I like this theme. I think the theme has grown on me over time. But I do think it's... it's I kind of mentioned this also earlier, but it suffers a little bit compared to the PAX games because... It doesn't feel grounded in the same way that, you know, like Pax Premier feels like it is in the 19th century. The great game, right. The great game, Or or Pax Porfiriana, where it's the uh, Mexican-American, you know, turn of the century, well, last century, 20th century time frame. And it's stuff that, like, it it teaches you about a part of history that, I'll be honest, I didn't know much about either one of those. And so this stuff... This is very much more nebulous in terms of like, what's the time frame of this? And it's the whole world. And it's, you know, and not what clear. are these things? And yeah. some of them are fantastical. Like they're just made up like theoretically, maybe. Yeah. But whereas you and I are both kind of history buffs. So we kind of dig that historical tie in. Yeah. This doesn't have that. So yeah. it's, it's a bit more abstracted. So I totally get that. Yeah. And so I, like I said, I like the theme, but I do think it just doesn't feel as like immediately arresting as, as like the other PAX games do for me. And another theme related drawback to the game for me is, okay, we solve world hunger, but that doesn't cause the other problems that would come with doing that. Right. (laughs) Overpopulation stuff like, like it doesn't, I mean, does that make sense yeah. to where, like, look, it's awesome oh. that we're solving this problem. If you fix aging, there's going to be a whole lot of other issues that you have to deal with. 
Right. So does that mean like people go on living in perpetuity? Right. Does it add 50 years? But- and no one ever leaves, like houses never change hands and people just have to take up more and more property. Like how does that work? Right. Which, I mean, I can't imagine a board game could tackle this in no. that way. I understand that. So it's not really a fault. It's just... It's hard to be like, well, I saw pollution and just take a chit and it doesn't, it right. doesn't and, feel and, like it's and, and on that note, that's exactly what, oh, hey, I just solved pollution. Yeah. The world's pollution. Oh, yeah. So well, something, I solved racism. Like, <laughs> like, that shouldn't be just, oh, I got a victory point. I got a chit. Like, yeah. that should feel, holy cow, look at what we just did. This yeah. is amazing. And the game doesn't have that right. pull to it. Like, Ultimately, it's a cardboard shit that I got that is all that matters is a victory point. And the, the thematic, again, that theme can be a reach in some regards. You know, you really got to kind of search for it. Yeah. And that's going to be one of those disconnects for me is is that idea. I, yeah. For me, I think the theme, the theme of this game is the narrative of the different players actions. And it's not so much what's printed on the cards and the chits i guess and that's kind of the reach that people have to make i right. think for it to, to really enjoy the theme of it all right moving on to scalability um does it excellent i think this game plays well at two three and four how about you i think four is maybe my least favorite just because there's so much that can happen between your given turns that it can feel like you have less control over the game. Agreed. Uh, I don't think it's bad. I, I'm hap- I've played it many times before. I'm happy to do so. But I do think you get that l- you feel a little bit more like you can sway the state of the game on your own when there's less people. Yeah, playing. more agency to your actions yeah. in a three-player game or or even a two-player game. Right. I I agree. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of mechanical scalability in this game, but I'll be honest, it really doesn't need it in that regard. Yeah. So the living rules that the company put out. Okay. uh, So hold on before we go any further on that. So living rules for those that are unfamiliar with this living rules are, uh, rule books that change. If you're a war gamer or a, uh, Phil Eklund, uh, gamer, you're familiar with this idea. So basically what it is, is if you go to Ion Game Design's website, or maybe it's Sierra Madre's website, one of those two, and there's an updated rule book that is I'm not going to say constantly updated, no, but it is periodically updated due to, hey, the game's out in the wild. Hey, this would work better like this. We're going to change that because yeah. there's only so much you can do in playtesting. Okay. I'm fine with that. There are some people that hate living rules and you know what? Just uh, give me the, uh, give me the rule book that's in the book uh, that's in the box and we'll go with that. But yeah. a lot of times we're going to try and play, especially with these type of games with the most updated living rules. Yeah. So that's what that is. So right. that said in the living rules, in the living rules, there is an optional variant because people were online were complaining that they felt at lower player counts, tycoon victories were too easy. So, uh, Eklund's essentially offered this variant where you use slightly less cards in the deck. And so the game, the tipping points come out faster and the game ends quicker. So it's harder for people to win in a tycoon victory when there's less players. Okay. All uh, right. Fair enough. I've only played it once and it seemed to not 
change the game that much. Like maybe the game ended slightly faster, but I could see, I could appreciate why people were wanting that, but I don't think it's necessary, I guess, from my perspective. Um, but it's there for those that want it. It's there right? for those that want it. Yeah. The other thing scalability wise is there's a set player order within this game. So only certain colors are available. Plus they are a little bit asymmetric as far as their starting financial advisors, where they are, how much right. capital and how much money you too. start. Right. And your starting patent. But other than that, um, yeah, mechanical scalability, there really isn't a whole lot. And I would happily play this at two, three or four. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest. I haven't played solo. Have you, I've tried the solo rules and it felt it felt like I was just racing to get a tycoon victory before the AI did, and that didn't feel that fun, but I don't know. I've only tried it like once or twice. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So now the comments from BGG. Here we go. I wasn't sure the PAX series would benefit from stepping away from its his historical roots, but PAX Trans Humanity is a work of future history and one of the finest science fiction games ever created, largely thanks to its unapologetic optimism there are perils of plenty to navigate but the ideas portrayed here are as transformative and as essential as wheels printing presses or vaccines were to our ancestors yeah yeah I, again there's that you know it, it's a optimistic future look as opposed to yeah you know and these are you look at these ideas and if they were real they would be transformative to say the least I mean, look at how far humanity has come in the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, hell, the last 30 years. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. So, yeah, I, I could see some of these, you know, in our lifetime, if not more bioprinting, like being able to print a new human yeah. heart. Right. Stuff like that. Transhumanity packs a pretty deep game into its small package. There's plenty of depth to plumb in warring over the splay, managing your economy, understanding the market tableau and keeping an eye on the various victory conditions that could come into play. The more stable market places a bit more strategic control to the players as compared to other PAX games. Each turn from the very first is important. Players can lead themselves into dead ends early if they don't understand the game's order of operations or the state of the tableau. The game does have a bit of an odd arc. The beginning portion can feel a bit slow as the players establish presence and declare some strategic intentions. But once a few research and or commercialized actions happen, the game and conditions come into play and the game gets sharper. Technology has progressed and problems have been solved. How will the world react? There's lots of theme here, but it's going to take a bit of work for the players to bring it out. As and... As compared to other PAX games, the players will have to work harder to internalize the thematic message. Kind of what we've been saying yeah, all along, 100%, right? Yeah, 100%. All right. PAX Transhumanity is mechanically solid and, clean, and a clean design. It's tense, quick, thinky, and tactical. However, like its elder brother PAX Emancipation, is too abstract for me, especially in its mechanical tie-in with its subject matter. For me... Even Bios Genesis had a lot more mechanical ties to its theme. I miss the storytelling. On the positive side, the static market is a nice change of pace, and the finance board is also quite interesting, same as it is in Pax Emancipation. There's also a ruthlessness galore for all Eklund fans, which is good. 
On the negative side, I'm a bit frustrated with the continuous resilience on learning peculiar theme-related names for simple actions. I understand why this was done, but that's not my idea of theme integration. Also, gone is the Tableau building arc of the pack series. Now almost every action is a one-off, and that's it. Very transactional indeed. Last, the first third of the game is molasses slow, which is just makes it too dry. The components are a mixed bag with some card color issues, cubes that are a tad too big, and a typo on the player aid. The design is clean, but uninspiring. The rulebook is typical Eklund, but better. Overall, perhaps there's a very good game in there, but I'm not interested enough to find it. All fair critiques. I think I would just say I can find the storytelling in it, but it is abstract. Right. Yeah. yeah. And again, you're going to have to work to find it a little bit. Yeah. It's a wonderful design. Six plays in, still finding myself wanting more. I think this game's storytelling is perhaps unmatched in the PAX series, which is all more remarkable because the game features no specific characters or settings. As a piece of competitive game design, I think PAX Transhumanity also works. The stable market, innovated by Matt, though used by Phil in PAX Emancipation, is very well suited to this game and makes possible a level of market analysis usually not possible in a PAX-style game. Partly, this works to the game's detriment as players will often find their options and the consequences that follow to be dizzying. This serves the theme well, but might chase away some new players. Yeah. Yes, Cole. I think that, yeah, spot on. <laughs> Dizzying might be an understatement. <laughs> right. When you look at it, you're just, you're like, uh, well, yeah, it's overwhelming. It can be. But a lot of big games have that, I think. So I don't think that's specific to the to the PAX series or specific to PAX Transhumanity for that. Mm-hmm. One of the joys of PAX Porfiriana was the insane variety of cards in its big deck. The light they shone on some of history's minor players and the game effects that faithfully represented their doings. My greatest problem with transhumanity is that the cards in its big and varied decks stubbornly refuse to come to life. I'm noticing the theme here. I'm no scientist. And so things like biophilotic algae and germline alteration fail to resonate. Every card has remained a pair of colors and some icons just as in porfiriana and transhumanity were collecting cards of particular colors in hopes of manipulating the regime or dominant sphere to that color in porfiriana you bought a card from the market simply by paying its cost in transhumanity the commercialized action that achieves this is a 10-step process requiring the right three things to have been put in place by previous actions while income is a phase of the Porfiriana turn happening automatically in transhumanity fundraising is one of the two precious actions per turn and one you're going to need to do frequently to avoid falling into debt while transhumanity pace does pick up its opening is plotting what's more there's an awful lot of pushing cubes from one card or box to another that's not enlivened by commercializing external externalities philosophy or syndicating the universal property directory player interaction in humanity feels more muted than in other packs games limiting to some of the card impacts into getting a desirable thing ahead of an opponent 
Overall, the feel is one of those convoluted Euro efficiency puzzles. For me, transhumanity is as dry as space dust. Also, I I can't argue with that. I think that's all valid critique. I think the I I see more player interaction in this game than I think he does. I think oh, that's, that that I would agree with. Yeah. Yes, I think it's it's subtle. It's subtle. Yes, but it's there. Yeah. All right, one more. If an Elklandian Pax could be deemed "quote unquote" elegant, then I nominate Pax Transhumanity as a foremost contender. While it shares numerous artifacts with its ancestor, Pax Emancipation. Much of the fat has been cut in favor of quote-unquote streamlined actions. I quote that word because one of the most critical actions in the game still consists of a 10-step process. Hello, commercialize. But that is mostly a one-way procedure of checks rather than a flowchart of branching paths in which a similar action found in its predecessor. Furthermore, gone are the exceptions and configurational requirements of various pawns and slavery barriers from Pax Emancipation's map. Instead, use placards, which simply track work, with the fleeting resource spent to execute crucial actions available to you. That's not to say the streamlining of Pax Transhumanity is inconsequential. If you crave the rich theming and narrative that was present in other Pax games, Emancipation, Porphyriana, Renaissance, etc., you may find yourself at a loss here. The jostling and opportunism is as present as ever, but whether by virtue of an idealist to a fault setting, yes, of course the rich investors of humanity would ignore the voices of greed and self-interest to advance any and all less fortunate than them, right? Right. Or by the virtue of a leaner rule set, Pax Transhumanity is lacking in the narrative department. When all is said and done, this does remain a strong contender in the Pax library. And dare I say, a more than viable candidate is a gateway game into the Sierra Madre game Ion game catalog. Apart from that, it's quite a good two-player romp as well. So there you go. That's kind of the uh, that yeah. kind of fits the gamut f- yeah. uh, of comments that uh, that are available out there. I remember when we were first uh, playing this game, Ken. I described it as bankers to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, it takes money to do stuff, right? All right. So you are the guest, sir. Would you like to summarize the review? Sure. Pax Transhumanity manages the impressive feat of feeling very much a part of the PAX game series while being clearly distinct from other PAX games in its mechanics and overall gameplay. Hallmarks of the series are all here, like variable ending conditions, a market of cards which is drawn from a small subset of a massive deck of cards, and the trademark opacity obscuring what the true game state is. Most importantly, PAX Transhumanity creates a constant tug of war between having a long-term plan to follow and shifting with the chaos caused by the other players and the cards themselves. Winning requires not only finding the efficient path to commercializing cards, but also anticipating what your opponents will commercialize and what the dominant sphere will be when the game ends, or if there will not even be a dominant sphere as humanity reaches a singularity with technology, suddenly making companies and problems meaningless. The theme is not immediately apparent, but repeated plays will reveal not only how to play well, but how the game tells a sometimes hopeful, sometimes cynical story of how mankind can transcend old limitations and become better. Maybe. 
I'm a fan of the PAX series as a general rule. Not really a big fan of PAX Emancipation. I thought that was that it that didn't do it for me. But outside of that, I'm a fan of pretty much all the other PAX games. And when I heard about this game originally, I was like, oh, interesting. Plus, it's Matt Eklund's design. Oh, I'm really curious to see what Matt does. Then when I actually sat down and had Matt explain the overview of the game to me at Origins last year, I couldn't help but get excited about this game. Between the optimism within the theme as well as just the way that it felt like the game flowed really well. I was really, really excited about this. And when I sat down to play it, I was completely lost the first couple times when I played it. But there are certain games out there that just appeal to you as a sum of its parts. And this is definitely one of those. And there are some games out uh, there are a fair number of games out there that we tend to play on heavy cardboard that require you to work to get them and work to enjoy them. Some are worth it. Some are not to me. Pax Transhumanity is worth the work. All right. So we rate games on a one to six scale here. One, burn it with fire. Six being a Hall of Fame game. There's no half numbers. So no three and a half. Sorry. If it's not a four, it's a three, etc. So for me, once we start hitting the four number, then I'm like, yeah, that's a game that I might want to own. A five. I definitely want to own that. Six. Duh. All right. Anything below that? Yeah, it gets a little gets a little suspect. So for you, sir, on a one to six scale, how would you rate Pax Transhumanity? So I rate as a five. I think there are enough flaws with this that I can't quite say it's perfect and put up there with a six. But I love it. I think it's a fascinating puzzle every time I play it. And yeah, I'm happy I have a copy. I hate when we match, but (laughs) yeah, I also gave this game a five. And one thing that we didn't really talk about in the review, we kind of alluded to it, I guess, but we didn't actually come out right and say it is the replayability is nearly limitless Mm. because of the fact that you're only using what 38 of the 111 idea cards available. You're almost never going to likely never to play the same game twice. And that replayability and the stories that this game potentially can tell as long as you as long as you look for them. So I want to take a step back for a second and you look at a game that we just live streamed last night, Crusader Kings, and you look at Pax Transhumanity, obviously apples and giraffes. They're both board games, the ends, right? However, you look at the reason I'm going to play Crusader Kings is because the amazing stories that game's going to tell. And it's front and center and it's it's a legitimate strategy game with a ton of randomness that can be somewhat mitigated but it's all about that wow that story was just oh did you did you realize so and so you know married glitter hoof the horse <laughs> or glitter whatever the horse <laughs> Or, you know, my my dim-witted son went off to the Crusades and yeah. died or, or whatever. Remember that time I bribed you so that you'd kill my son? Right, exactly. <laughs> See, I mean, 
there you go. That is a game that is absolutely, you don't have to go looking for the theme. It's going to hit you upside the head, and that's why you're playing that game. Pax Transhumanity, the theme's there, but you definitely, for me, the mechanical aspect of it, first and foremost, but also the way it ties into the theme works for me, but it's definitely not going to work for everybody. But again, I just, yeah, it's, it's interesting how they're both rich in theme, but it's just one you have to work for. And one is a yeah. lot more obvious. Yeah. yeah. I find that fascinating, but yeah, for me, uh, Pax Transhumanity, a, a five, I think it's, I think it's worth the work. Um, it is definitely one of my favorite in the pack series. Although I'll be honest, I don't know outside of maybe emancipation that I'm not super keen on. I don't know that I don't like a lot mm-hmm. all the other PAX games, but I think I would probably, I will put this in the top three of PAX games. It could be number one, but off the top of my head, it's probably in the top three again, excluding, uh, PAX, uh, Premier 2.0 because that's such a different animal. I think for me, I like PAX Premier First Edition for me is like number one with a bullet. I don't know if that's ever going to be dethroned. I just love that game so much, but this is this is a strong contender for second. All right. So there you go. That is our review of Matt Eklund and Ion Game Designs PAX Transhumanity. All right. So, hey, Andrew, thanks a lot for coming on, dude. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm just glad it's not late at night right now <laughs> or yeah, we got a late start. But, hey, I think I hope folks enjoyed it. I think you did great. I think it was a thank you. I, I think it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed doing this. Hopefully folks enjoy listening to this. Yeah. Um, Hopefully I'm not too long winded. No, I I don't think so. But I'm sure there are the ah, you did great. <laughs> so my question for you, you're not really on social media anywhere. Yeah. Are you? No. Okay, so if you wanna if you wanna reach Andrew, um, watch the streams. Yeah, or hit me up in Slack. Become a patron, right? Hey, I I support that, especially. Again, money is tight for folks right now. Yes. given what all is going on, I understand that. However, if you do enjoy the content, whether it's the podcast here or whether it's the live streams that we create, if you guys think it's worthy of a buck or two, I certainly would appreciate it. You can go over to pledgehc.com, support the show there. You get some uh, benefits for doing so, whether it's the Slack channel or other benefits. Go check it out, pledgehc.com. I really, really would appreciate it because, yeah, I know money's tight, but it is. Yeah, money's tight, but I'll say there's a really cool community of people on there. And I mean, I talked about earlier, I found out about a game that looks amazing entirely through the war game Slack channel there. Like I would not have heard of Nevsky otherwise, I think. See, and I don't know if that's a selling point for some people because they're like, great. So you're going to get me to buy more games. Great. They're they're already watching you. But I I was going to (laughs) say, if you're listening to the reviews or you're watching the show, that's already a problem we have. So it is what it is. But hey, seriously, thank you everybody out there for listening. I hope you're enjoying the podcast uh, be, uh, having returned. Um, thanks again to Andrew for coming in, uh, given the current state of the world. And be safe out there. Take care of one another. Continue to play games. And uh, yeah, just take this serious so that we can move past this and laugh about it in a few years. All right? So take care, everybody. Catch you all in a couple weeks. 
and hope the world uh, gets past coronavirus sooner rather than later. Take care, everybody. Bye.